0: As I begin my own spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala along that journey. Sheikh Zain Abdul was born and raised in Liverpool, UK. From a young age, he was inspired by lectures from scholars like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, and Sheikh Nuhameem Keller to study abroad and bring back scholarship to the UK. After studying in the Yemen for just under a decade, Sheikh Zain returned to the UK in 2010 as the Imam of the South Wales Islamic Centre in Cardiff a port city which has its own unique history of Muslim migrants from Yemen and Somalia. He is now a university chaplain at the University of Liverpool and Liverpool John Moores University. In this episode, he talks about Islam in the UK, the challenges with working with different Muslim groups and his experiences in dealing with extremist and radicalized Muslims throughout his life, both in Cardiff and then as a prison chaplain in Liverpool. He opens up about the importance of not just copying and pasting what he's learned in Tarim, but adapting it in a way that suits the needs of the people he's serving in the UK. And finally, Sheikh Zain shares a touching story from his youth about an emotional moment with Sheikh Hamza Yusuf that brought Sheikh Hamza to tears. Habib Ali Al-Jifri, who was also present, remarked that the young man had stirred something in Sheikh Hamza's heart. That story has stuck with him all these years, leading him to inspire others the way Sheikh Hamza inspired him. Oh.
1: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you for um, uh, giving me the time to, to take a trip down memory lane. Uh, to, you know, To think about, um, to revisit um, things uh, that perhaps haven't done so in, in a long time. Uh, so, masha'Allah, so I was born in the UK. In Liverpool. Liverpool's quite an important city for many, many reasons, but religiously, uh, <coughs> the first mosque in this country was established here in the late 1800s by uh, Abdullah Quilliam. He was a convert to Islam himself and he established the first mosque uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, and had, so it was a Victorian uh, era. At that time, obviously, quite a lot of people became Muslim during his time in the community. And then you had, uh, over the decades, people coming here from different parts of the world. Um, I think oftentimes here in the UK, people tend to forget that the Yemenis came over quite early on in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Early the Yemenis uh, sailors actually came here and established um, like small communities. They married the women, the local women here. That was the case in Liverpool, uh, in Cardiff, and uh, which is in Wales, South Wales, and in South Shields. Uh, so my f- parents came here uh, in the late sixties uh, from Yemen, and my uh, uh, Hollywood had family members here already prior to that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so the kind of a, of a small community made up of. Pre- pre- uh, Predominantly Yemenis and Somalis at that time here, and obviously there were some Malaysians and some pockets of, of um, Southeast Asian Muslims as well. So I kind of grew up, uh, you know, in that, in those type of communities. But there was quite a lot of uh, Yemenis at that time. Liverpool tended to have a big population back then of, of Yemenis. Is,
0: is there a, a reason that there are so many Yemenis moving to Liverpool, or is it just you know? <laughs> I
1: think together, the British. Or- the British Empire obviously had um had links <laughs> to <laughs> Yemen, uh as they did many countries. So you'll find things in France a lot of Moroccans, North Africans because of the, the colonial uh, history there and links. Right. And the British Empire had links to uh Yemen there obviously. So you had quite a lot of Yemenis uh coming over to uh, to the UK, uh, you know, because it was just it was easy then for for them to come. For uh, them to come and go. Uh, also, obviously, when a few a few people come, then the rest relatives right. can kind of follow on as well. But also, was sailors as well, the sailors. So, so Liverpool is a port, so, so it's, uh, it's, uh, sailors would arrive here. Uh, in the slave trade, is quite an important uh, uh, stop off uh, mm. in that in that in that, in that uh, evil mm. transatlantic slave. Trade. Uh, Liverpool uh, has a dark past there, uh, but obviously the sailors there um, was, a, was a very important port. Other than slavery, obviously, so y- Yemenis who were, sl- who were sailors actually uh, stopped up from ports. So similar, to Cardiff. Cardiff was also a port. Cardiff in South Wales also a port. So you find like, the port areas that's where they kind of just mm. settle in those areas, and then over the decades they they um, travelled more inland.
0: Interesting. Thank you for that that history. Um, so you obviously grew up in a community that was pretty established already. Um, you know, when did you realize that Islam was going to be an important part of your
1: life? Hey, what do you mean by that?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, so you went to study, you became an imam. But what what was kind of like that moment where you're like, okay, this is actually really important to me. I think, um, you know with people that are born Muslim there is a point where we have to you know kind of make that effort ourselves it's not just something our parents
1: tell us so um what was that moment for you okay uh i well it's interesting um I, growing up I actually grew up in a, in a household <coughs> you know my father uh you know, prayed my mother uh prayed they were you know they were kind of they were practicing and the community uh you know I, I kind of grew up in you know the mosque i go to quite regularly as a, as a young as a young man. Um, we we went to the, the Qur'anic schools uh, any weekend and so on and so forth and uh, so we, we kind of always grew up with the identity that we are Muslim mm-hmm. and at, at school mashallah, uh, although it was, it was a secular school uh, I, was, I was very privileged I had a very privileged education and secular uh, but my, even my friends at school were Muslim, practicing Muslims. So I'd always had practicing Muslims uh, around me in my circle of friends, you know, from day one. So it's quite fortunate. Although I, I had friends who weren't Muslim, but predominantly my inner circle of friends were always, always kind of, always kind of Muslim. Those I went to school with, and the area that I grew up in was an area that was uh, uh, populated with a lot of Muslims. Uh, So I was always around Muslims Uh, So uh, I remember So I always had that interest In Islam, I was always practicing But I remember um, You could argue that uh, Okay, where to begin With this one Uh, It was We had this thing called The Young Muslims, YM An organization uh, That was very popular Very active (coughs) In the late Uh 90s, uh, 1995, so on and so, quite, quite active. And they, I remember I went to this camp. Uh, it wasn't really a camp, it was kind of a retreat, as people would call nowadays. And it was, you know, speakers talking about this, talking about that. We were, just, we were just there for the sport and playing around and just, you know, having fun. And I remember listening to a an African-American imam who for me was the first time that I, and I must have been about 14 years old. It was the first time I'd ever heard an Islamic speaker talk and actually have me engaged. And I was like, oh my God, this is really different. This is, he's engaging and he's he's interesting uh, to listen to. And he's talking something that is useful. You know, rather than the, you know, the, sadly, uh, the the, the Jum'ah khutbahs were kind of like monotone, not really, you know, of any use, sadly, not really um, connecting with the people, uh, uh, you know, that are there in the mosque. But for me, this was the first time I was like, my God, this is, well, he's really talking some, so the, the power of Islam really came out. And that uh, Imam was called uh, Imam Siraj Wahaj. Mm. This is so, this is. What, what, 1993, 94, okay, 1993, 94. And the next day he had another lecture and I was like, right, I'm gonna be listening to this. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and at the end, mashaAllah, I, I I bought his cassettes, I had a couple of cassettes, cassettes, obviously this is, uh, if you know what, you know what cassettes are, don't you? Yes. Cassettes. Okay, maybe a lot of people don't know, but Google uh, cassettes. You find out what that is so I bought his cassettes that were being sold there, and I went home and started listening to them and you know shared them with my family as well and interestingly um uh, Liverpool kind of uh, is the the um the trend setter for a lot of um the big da'wah uh mm. things that happened now what I mean by that is that uh to continue on that um there was an organization in Liverpool uh, called the Ibn Abbas Institute. Have you heard of this? I have not, no. Why? Wow, because this is quite important. The Ibn Abbas Institute. And uh, this is a group of brothers uh, from Liverpool who kind, who were, um, one of them was um, Sheikh Ibrahim Osefa. the other one was called um, Abder, Sheikh Abdurrahim Green, uh, Hans Heinz, Abdurrahim Hines, and Sheikh Haroun Hanif and a few others, a few others. At that time, none of, none of these were Sheikhs. All right? And they set up an organization that was, um, at that time in the 90s, there was a lot of focus on political activism. And it was just, it was very different scene to what we have nowadays. But this institute began to invite speakers into the city, into the UK and have tours uh, uh, taking scouts around the UK. And uh, so they, they actually they brought um, Imam Salih Rahaj already, uh, already to the to, to the UK and to Liverpool. I didn't know about that, uh, and they started to bring Imam Zaid in speakers who nowadays pack out, in right. you know, an audience like 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 the, like the Riz for example. <laughs> well, this is like 19, mid nineties, early nineties now, where they were kind of still uh, unknown, uh, in some uh, particularly in the Western UK audience, relatively unknown. So th- this organization, Ibn Abbas Institute began to invite the likes of Imam Saraj Wahaj and Imam Zaid. And they then, uh, these scholars advised the organizers of, of Ibn Abbas Institute to bring over a uh, American uh, convert uh, who uh, Imam Saraj Wahaj called uh, the, the scholar of America, the scholar of America. And so these brothers um, said, okay, give us a name. And he goes, well, his name is Hamza Yusuf. <laughs> Hamza Yusuf. So again, this is what, 1994, 95, about 95. <laughs> and so they bring over Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. And what they do was something very different. Uh, they actually began to have to develop an idea of bringing over a scholar. And that scholar will, will sit in the community and work through uh, a book, mm. teach this community a particular book, and then leave. For example, rather than their typical thing that they had back then, and in some regards we've kind of come back to it, where you take this uh, scholar, and you go from city to city to city, uh, you know, and people just you know hear a very inspirational talk, but there's no, uh, you know, there's nothing, there's no follow up. Right. So Sheikh Hamza begins to advise these young men and women to think about. uh being more educated and focused on educational uh, incentives, Mm -hmm. i.e. bringing a scholar over who teaches you uh, for a a month or so, uh, or you have this retreat where people come uh, for a month and spend time with scholars and learn. And that's, he brought that idea, excuse me, he brought that idea to them. And he actually does something else, which is quite unique, which kind of like uh, set, particularly in the UK, Set the ball rolling, and he um, he actually advised the brothers and their sisters rather than yourselves being dependent on scholars from outside of your communities why don't you why don't you yourselves go and learn the faith abroad and come back and be the scholars and be the imams in the communities rather than having them uh, transported in from Far away uh, from a foreign land, people who have no context to the country they're going into have no and have a language barrier, have a cultural barrier. How about the people from the city itself go and learn? That was quite radical, especially here in Liverpool. That was quite a radical type of idea, Uh, but it caught on. Mm. And I think what made it more um, attractive and more, um, more of a reality is that here you have. A person who wasn't born into a Muslim family, uh, who went abroad uh, as a white as a white convert, mm-hmm. and 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 he's more knowledgeable than than you know, most people uh, uh, have come across. Uh, so the idea was that if he can do it, then well, we can do it. You know? mm-hmm. So he kind of made it more of a reality. Uh, so so then um, Ibn the Ibn Abbas obviously they they did take Sheikh Hamza around different cities and. Uh, some of the major uh, um, pivotal mov- moments uh, in, in UK Dawah history, I would say, happened that summer. Mm-hmm. So uh, at that time, you had, again, a very political activist mindset, uh, uh, you know, it was about political engagement and so on and so forth. They had very politically orientated groups. And you had the very, on the other side, you had a very literal, uh, 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 you know, like Salafist. Uh, organizational groups who are just very you know anti that mm-hmm. and anti anything else other than its own uh, uh, its own you know borders <clears throat> but the more of the traditional classical uh, um, Islam i.e following a particular school Hanifi, Shafi, Maliki, Hanbali following a particular uh, tradition when it comes to the our our, our aqidah our creed and definitely when it, came, when it came to spirituality, I think what, uh, what Sheikh Hamza did and the Ibn Abbas Institute as a vehicle, began to introduce these things to the general uh, UK population and, and gave people an opportunity to understand these uh, in a way and in a language that was familiar to them. So then the following year, you had um, a, a retreat that was done in Nottingham, if I'm not mistaken. And there you had uh, uh, sheikhs like, obviously, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, uh, Sheikh Nuh Hamim Keller, he, he was brought in, um, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, he was brought in, Sheikh Yasser Qadi, he was brought in, a few, and a few others. And amongst the participants there, you had a lot of people who went on to be um, scholars and sheikhs in their own rights. From the participants, the mm-hmm. students who were there, a lot of them have gone on to be sheikhs themselves. So that's, that's quite unique uh, as a part of our history. And I did the interview with um, Masood Khan, uh, who has a very famous web- website, uh, Mas- uh, www.masood.co.uk, And he and I spoke about this particular moment in, uh, in UK, da'wah. History as being a very profound and pivotal moment, uh, I would say, because all of a sudden now you have access to Western uh, scholarship mm-hmm. that is telling you that you have to follow a, a particular school of thought. You can't just go. You cannot just go to the Quran and Sunnah and reinterpret. Uh, so it was giving people access to 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 a tradition that was off limits mm-hmm. due to language and due to other barriers and they can kind of just crack it open and just you know, put it out there and people a lot of people uh, you could say uh, uh, saw the light <laughs> for lack of a lack of a, bet, a better term but it was very pivotal and I think it's um, a lot of people do not know that the fruits of what they have today uh, can mm-hmm. you know can be traced back to that those particular years what? So, so 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 to get to, to answer your get... question Sorry, to answer your question, where do I fit in? I didn't go to any of those oh. <laughs> uh, any of those retreats because uh, I was too young at the time. Right, right. Uh, you know, mine was elsewhere. But I do remember Sheikh Hamza Yusuf coming to Liverpool in 1995 and hearing his khutbah in Arabic. He did the khutbah in Arabic and I did it in English. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy uh, who's just been speaking for 20 minutes or however long in Arabic is now speaking in perfect English. <laughs> and I remember getting up and saying, is this the same, the same imam? Talking the same, and it was, and it was, so. Uh, so uh, that was 1995. Two years later, I'm at university, and a, a young a young sister, MashaAllah, uh, who was very, um uh, uh, she uh, was very much into Shaykh Hamz Yusuf. Uh, she was at university, at the same course as me, and she had the cassette, uh, she was always talking about Sheikh Hamza Yusuf And I was like, oh yeah, I've heard of him And she gave me the cassette And I began to listen to the cassette And I was just very uh, Very taken aback uh, And started listening to more Of his talks and uh, More of his talks on cassette uh, And also, at that time um, Some of the, uh, the organizers Of the Ibn Abbas Institute had, had now themselves Gone abroad Had now gone to study in Syria, in Yemen and every Ramadan in the summer, they'd come back. And so, so I was kind of like trying to catch up with what I kind of, you know, catch up with the scene. Obviously you had, you know, Shaykh Hamz Yusuf getting more popular, and I was listen, listening to his cassettes, and also Abd hakim Murad, mm. uh, so, and obviously Sheikh Nuh as well. Massive, massive, massive uh, influence. Uh, can't be underst- underestimated. Mm. And him saying uh, in his cassettes, <laughs> introducing the concept of of madhabs, and really tackling you know the kind of um, the the anti madhab uh, movement that was saying you don't follow madhab, you follow the Quran and Sunnah, which is kind of useless. Uh, and it's it's kind of an illogical thing. People who really understand what that means. And he kind of like gave it, you know, what a madhab is, why you have to follow it. Abdul Hakim Murad also began, you know, obviously did something similar. His very famous article, understanding the four madhabs. Uh, so I began to read a lot of these things, and I remember it must have been nineteen ninety. Let's see, I was at university in ninety eight. I think that fir- my first year university. And I was listening heavily to a lot of their cassettes, a lot of their talks and finding them uh, very useful. <coughs> I, I remember hearing Abdul Hakim Murad on one of his cassettes. and At that moment in time, I was thinking, right, I, I want to go my study. Mm. It was like the idea kind of uh, was evolving
0: yeah,
1: about studying uh, abroad. But at that time, I was like, right, got my degree or oh, I'm, I'm in the process of doing my degree at university. I'm going to. Uh, I'll work during the day in, in in the Muslim country, perhaps in the Middle East, and then in the evenings I will. I will kind of study. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, 70% I'll work, and then at night I'll study. So I can kind of. That's that. That was the kind of the way I was thinking of. It. But I remember hearing Abdul hakim Murad in one of his talks. I think it was called the Revival of Classical Islamic Education. It, it, it was a Sunday, autumn. And it's quite sunny outside, which is quite rare here for the first in the UK. And I remember him giving this beautiful lecture, and then there was a and A at the end. And Abdul Hakim Murad was asked uh, about um, should uh, do you advise people for going away to study? And he said yes. And he was he he put a big emphasis on the need for uh, our West uh, our UK com- Muslim communities to have. Imams and sheikhs and scholars and st- stads or Saturday from those communities go out to study and come back which is kind of what was done throughout the Muslim world and he was kind of pushing on that heavily and uh, that, that his advice he goes we you know there's nothing better that a person can be doing than going away to study and coming back to help their community and when he said that for me that was the um, that was the moment I said right yeah and he I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to commit this. I'm going to I'm going to commit a lot more to this than um, and yeah. So that was the moment there, and then that was the everything up 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 until then. It was like work during the day, and you know, that's what I would do. But when he said that, I said, okay, this needs a bit more of a, um, a bit more of a focus and more of a, a sacrifice because this is full time, and obviously you're going to come back and obviously you know, help the community, uh, you know, and you know do the dawah. So that that for me, him saying that was the moment that really, I uh, was a, a life-defining moment. I said that the the morning I woke, I woke up, I didn't have that idea, uh, but at night I did have that idea. But obviously now I need to try and convince my parents, who spent a lot a lot of money on my education, uh, and hamla. But yeah, mashallah. so that was that was the that was the catalyst. But there's a lot there. Uh, you have time to go into.
0: <laughs> no, thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to backtrack a little bit. I mean, you talk about these cassette tapes, which I think are really important. A few people have mentioned, um, like these cassette tapes that um, were kind of going around at the time. Uh, you know, like what was on these tapes or even like when Sheikh Hamza, Sheikh Kimran, Sheikh knew, like when they were speaking, you know, what was it that, I guess, touched people or touched you? Was it just like about the four hubs? Did people want to go away to study? or like, was there something okay. <laughs> deeper on there?
1: I I, would, I guess uh, that obviously the generation you've grown up in uh, has its challenges, but in terms of, um, you know, the idea of following a madhab, um, you know, Asharism, uh, and non-anthropomorphism elements of them, and the classical, understanding of tasawwuf These things are more acceptable somewhat uh, in your generation than it was perhaps in in the generation uh, that preceded you. And I think um, generally, I know that there's exceptions and obviously I'm seeing a lot of them, but I think that a lot, um, the idea of following the madhab was very new. Outside of uh, uh, um, uh, those communities who had imams who, you know, from Pakistan or from India, who are Hanifi, 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 who people really couldn't connect with. And there's nothing wrong with that, obviously, but um, for the audiences, the Western UK uh, audiences who speak English, the the general, uh, what was on, on offer, what was on the menu, wasn't that. What was on the menu was a very political type of Islam. Uh, uh, more around the Muslim Brotherhood, familiar with, the, for, with that organization, akhwan al Muslimim. It was more around political activism. It was more around, uh, more of the Salafi, uh, 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 you know, um, dogmatic, black and white, uh, rigid type of Islam. Uh, and I think it was the, the knowledge mm. and the legacy of Islamic knowledge yeah. uh, People uh, through these, through up Hamza Sheikh Yusuf, up Murad, and, and Sheikh Nuh and others, uh, people began to really have an opportunity to 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 um, to scratch below the surface and see the richness, the diversity, scholarship, to have an idea of the intellect behind Imam Shafi'i and so on and so forth. To see uh, the spiritual aspect as well, which is, which was is, which was missing at that time. Just the whole idea that within Islam there's a spiritual apparatus that is there to help you become closer to God. I, I always remember, uh, you know, one man who was in political activism in a particular group called uh, Hizb Tahrir (HT), which is still going around but nowhere near as as a, a big movement as it was in, in the 90s. And he was one of the main organizers at the time. And, he, and after many years, he said. He left that organization and moved towards more of a spiritual, traditional, classical Sunni Islam. And I remember him saying, uh, you know, to people who were quite disappointed that he was leaving the organization. And he, I remember him telling them, I don't know Allah. Mm-hmm. I don't know Allah. And for me, that's a very important statement. Uh that many years we've been going to the protests, we've been doing all these things, we've been, you know talks about khilafa and this, and, and this is before ISIS, obviously, you know, this is in the 90s. Um, and, you know, political activism, and obviously you had the Bosnian war and everything else, so on and so forth. But a lot of people were um, disenfranchised and a lot of people, if they were truthful, and many of them were, they were empty. Spiritually, they were mm-hmm. devoid of any spiritual, deep, meaningful moments or experiences. And at that time, you know, you kind of had, uh, you know, uh, the classical Islam being presented as a way that could that could deal with these things, and always has dealt with these things. And people began now to uh, have a different meal on the menu uh, that was more authentic, more rich, and had a history. And surprisingly, for a lot of people, it was something that was very similar to what their parents had been telling them. Hmm. You know, and, and that was a very that was a big moment for a lot of people, but it was a spiritual element, it was the it was it just made sense for a lot of people. The idea of following a madhab, you can't go to the Quran and Sunnah. Why would you want, you know, you have these great scholars and the people who are who people say we follow the Quran and Sunnah and we go to Bukhari Muslim? Well Bukhari and Muslim themselves were Shafi. <laughs> you know, how'd you get around that? and you're telling me to go to the hadith of Bukhari Muslim and not go to madhabs, but they themselves, the, the authors of it or the, or the hadith scholars who collected those hadiths, they themselves had to follow a madhab. So how are, we, how are we gonna, you gonna know, get around that? How are you not, not uh, um, registering these type of facts? So a lot of this came out and it was just, it came at the right time, it's from Allah, from Qadr Allah, Allah, Allah is the best of planners. And he really, SubhanAllah, uh, the right people at the right time uh, came and delivered the right message. And this is what these cassettes were really doing. It just gave people um, a bit more substance and a bit more reality and gave them a bit more, um, uh, hope mm-hmm. in their faith because just, and, and what's, what's surprising me right now is that we've seen in some quarters, we've seemed to come back full circle. It seems to be that uh, some people now uh, are pushing for that back again. This type of uh, political activism, which obviously political activism has has its you know role has its, uh, role to play, but uh, to exclude the kind of traditional traditional crowd, as as they want to call it, I think there's problems there. And I'll be honest, there there are criticisms that I have of the of the traditional crowd themselves in how uh, how they've understood their tradition and how they portray uh, that tradition. Uh, that obviously that has its own issues as well maybe we maybe if we want to talk about that later we can Inshallah.
0: yes i'll definitely bring that back up later um but okay so so you're at this moment you said um where you just kind of had this realization like you need to study this full time um how how do you convince your parents how do you decide okay uh yemen um you know you're
1: right you're okay parents, how do you end up there? interesting question so okay so what happened uh so this now uh, is a uh, a moment now where, okay, I need to do this. And uh, I remember uh, Sheikh Harun Hanif, who'd be interesting for you to also um, interview as well. Uh, he, at that time, obviously he was from the crowd of the Ibn Abbas
0: mm-hmm.
1: Institute, which is maybe this, now this is three or four years later. Um, and obviously he, um, he hasn't gone away to study yet fully, but he He and but others had Sheikh Ibrahim and Sheikh uh, Abdurrahim Hines and Abdul Khirim Morris and others. They were already gone abroad to study. He was he had the opportunity, hadn't opened itself up for him yet to go, but he was kind of influencing me as well because he was my uh my um my go to guy to understand the faith a bit more after listening to lectures. Sheikh Harun obviously was somebody I could go back to and this and benefit. and. Uh, and also to um, uh, increase my motivation to go when you study. So he and I, uh, then in 1999, yeah, na- the summer of 1999, May, he and I decided to go to Syria for a two-week uh, holiday. <laughs> uh, and the motivation uh, was to, uh, and Syria was a massive uh, destination, a very popular destination for Western Muslims and indeed other Muslims (coughs) from around the world to go and study but a lot of Westerners uh, were there studying Arabic and going on to study other uh, subjects and obviously several people from Liverpool uh, were already there so the idea was for us to go and have a look at uh, what life uh, of a student looks like because the idea was for us to then follow in the near future so we spent two weeks and we go around, I mean, mashallah, we meet many, st- at that time, students of knowledge who went on to be uh, scholars themselves. Um, some of them you've already interviewed yourself. So uh, for example, we, I met Sheikh Yahya Rodas, who was very new then to Islam. He was a convert, he was learning Arabic. We st- I stayed, uh, it was a building, an apartment that he was living in there. We had uh, Sheikh uh, Mohammed Mendez, we'd, we'd I mean, you know of him?
0: Yes, of course. I so yes. I, I mean I, I studied uh I did my masters in New Jersey
1: and um, Sheikh Mendes is there now as well. Right, there we go. So I uh, so I meet him, I meet Sheikh Yahya, Mendes, uh and a whole bunch of other guys um who were there who went on, you know, and they were all in the beginning of their studies. So for me it was like wow, seeing these people who've converted to Islam, American Muslim, mashaAllah. Um and I was like, okay. And I, I, we've, I visited with them, and Sheikh Ibrahim OCFA was also there at the time, uh, he was quite more senior, uh, but you could see that these retreats in the UK that had all these mashay come in had kind of um, acted as like the catalyst for these people to go and study now full-time in Arabic. So, I, so those two weeks were spent going around, seeing what it was like, and... I'm visiting scholars, mashallah, I visited many, many scholars, subhanallah. and I remember uh, in, in the streets one day, and I said to myself, "Wow, you know, Syria is basically everything I kind of you know, envisaged it would be, and kind of thought it would be." But something in my heart said, "If this is Syria, then what about Yemen?" And at that time, the only country. In fact the very first time I'd ever got onto a plane Was to go to Syria And that was the first time I'd left the country to go to Syria But at that moment in time I said to myself, wow you know What What about my ancestral Homeland of Yemen mm-hmm. I wonder what that, that must be like Because I knew the hadith Allah uh, Allah bless mm-hmm. our Sham and bless Yemen So I kind of thought, okay well Bismillah So I began to look into that a bit more And at that I think a year later, um, Sheikh Ibrahim then and others started to, to move from Syria and go to Yemen, have the remote to Tareem. And that's where the idea then to go to Tareem uh, began to um, develop.
0: So did you go directly um, from Syria to
1: Yemen or you came back to Yemen? No, I came back, did my last year of the, of the ah, Now, when I came back, to answer your question, right? After coming back from Syria, my parents kind of knew what I was there for. Uh, my mother said to me, right, you know, subhanAllah, and my father agreed. Okay, When you finish your degree, if you want to go and study your Islam, then you can. So my mashallah, so to this day, I don't know what happened. But my mother completely out of nowhere just said, if you want to go, you can go after you've completed your studies at university, which I had one year left anyway. But to this day, I don't know why she can't, she kind of, Beat me, beat me to it uh, but she said to me you know what well, you want to go you can go you know, Masha'Allah. so uh, that's kind of a mystery to <laughs> to why she said that uh, but she cause, man, we're, mothers mothers being mothers have an intuition so oh. no doubt she kind of sensed uh, sensed something and you know, my, I think even my father a few years before, prior had actually mentioned something like this that if he wanted to go to an Islamic University and then uh, you can, but at that time I wasn't mature enough to to understand. I wasn't very interested. Uh, although I was practicing, but I wasn't interested in doing that. But yeah, so alhamdulillah, So that's where the pyramids were convinced. Did my degree, fin- well, finished it off, and then um, uh, went to Tarim. Uh, had actually I spent about two months, two and a half months looking around Yemen. First time I've been there, my ancestral homeland. Travelled different places. Uh, and excuse me, I met um, different scholars and subhanAllah, and then eventually settled uh, on the idea of going to Tarim. Uh, so I, uh, I, I met Habib Umar, was very uh, impressed by him and decided then I would um, return back in, the, in, the, in a year's time uh, to study Arabic, which is, there was a new institute in Tarim called the Badr Arabic Institute uh which was new and i was from the first people there to study the arabic in that new institute
0: um you know what was it like going to thirin for the first time
1: right okay so for me um a it was very hot (laughs) (coughs) you know uh, coming from the uk it was quite hot uh but uh, for me um i was my first time i was there about two days about two and a half days i was only there for a quick stop uh, but what interested me was uh, how white everything was. Everything was white. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: maybe that was Noor. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> was, everything was very white, it was very light. Um, and I remember Habib Omar, uh, that, at that time, his, he lost his daughter. His daughter drowned mm. uh, at that time. Uh, so I didn't meet him until the, the last day. But when I met him, I was instantly... Um, taken aback by him and he, he didn't it wasn't really. didn't say much but I was just so um, taken aback mm. that I knew this was something different. this was kind of what I was looking for. and I, I mean just kind of like, um when I was traveling around Yemen, uh, yeah, the south of Yemen it, Tarim is probably one of the few places of traditional Islamic learning. There large parts of Yemen have been heavily influenced by, uh, um, you know, more political Islam uh, and more uh, of the Salafi Islam as well. Obviously, being very close to Gulf countries, which are are the um, you know can kind of originates from those countries, let's mm-hmm. say, uh, and Yemen being very close and being a lot more poorer, a lot of the money was pouring into Yemen. Uh, so these kind of voices uh anti-traditional voices let's call them uh, began to influence a lot of the uh, a lot of the religious uh, discourse in Yemen particularly in the north of Yemen which is that's that's where I'm kind of from mm-hmm. and started to trickle down to the south as well so I kind of I remember subhanallah um, going around different places different areas and um, meeting different people and uh, subhanAllah different sects. I also remember meeting Anwar Aulaki, are you familiar with him
0: uh, yes.
1: I think I am. yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't download any of his talks because you'll be you know, the <laughs> FBI or the CIA will be after you. Uh, but I kind of come across him uh, that and he was he wasn't um and I was telling him I'm interested in, in, uh, in studying to, in, going to Tareem and studying with Hayy Umar. and I remember him saying like just he was uh, against that idea I, I, which is interesting so uh, it was interesting you know that, uh, that so that kind of put me off him anyway. Also, the issue I asked him about medhebs following medhebs because I was trying to work out, you know, where he kind of fits in is he traditional, classical, or is he more of a modern type of interpretation, or is he more of the political activist, or is he more of the, the Salafi type of? Uh, and I say Salafi because that's what people who are Salafi call themselves. They call of Salafi, so it's derogatory term. I'm calling it, you know, by what they call themselves. So I was trying to work out where he kind of fitted in, and I remember asking him about medhebs. And uh, which, obviously, at that time, I knew that you know historical evidences that you have, you had to, and the fact that every major scholar, um, you know, from the mujtahdi Imams themselves right up until the present day, the major major scholars who, can, who who we can depend on, have all followed a madhab, and asking him that question, he didn't give me like a yeah, it didn't give me a yes, didn't give me a no, kind of wishy washy answer, which kind of kind of put me off as well from mm-hmm. listening uh, to anything fair that he had he had really to say which is a blessing now because obviously he went on to uh and he still is one of the main vocal uh, callers for jihad uh in the west and a lot of a lot of the terrorists uh from the west here uh you know uh, an overwhelming high percentage of them have been influenced by his talks that's another story from another time but the, um so I guess so. Tarim was a very interesting place, mashaAllah. Uh, I, I I already you know kind of in, you know looked at the history a little bit, but yeah, Hari Umar was the um, was the trigger for me for my interest, in just you know the very intense spiritual moment occurred uh, between he and I, which was basically kind of uh, cemented in my heart, in my mind, that this is a place I need to come back. I mean, I found what I'm looking for. And yeah, that, that was my point, sorry. Uh, I, at that time, I was going around Yemen. Uh, I was kind of undecided where, where to go. I remember asking different people and different groups, you know, uh, what do you think of this place? What do you think of that place? Uh, and every time I mentioned Tarim, these groups or these scholars or these sheikhs uh, would say, oh, don't go to Tarim. It's full of shirk. It's bid'ah, they'll do this, they'll do that And it's really scaremongering And I remember going to Tarim I remember (laughs) sitting um, In those two and a half days I remember sitting with uh, Habib Abdurrahman Mashur, Who was the son of the late Mufti After him, Habib Mashur. I remember asking him questions Similar questions uh, That I'd asked other sects and other groups uh, uh, Other scholars in Yemen But this time I kind of really laid it on I said, well, so-and-so group and so-and-so sheikh and this place and this place, they all say that you guys are deviants, or you guys are this, you guys worship graves, you guys are kafir, and I, I did not hide anything. I just laid it all out. And his reply um, also contributed to the, to the cementing in my heart and mind that these are prophetic people. Mm-hmm. His response, was similar to his great-great-grandfather's response, Ali ibn Abi Talib, when asked about the Khawarij, Muslim extremists, mm-hmm. um, uh, who are these people, the Khawarij? And he said, and the people around Sayyidina Ali said to him, uh, are, are they, <clears throat> are they, uh, are they, uh, are they, Kafir? And he goes, no, they fled, they ran away from Kafir. Okay, mm-hmm. they, well, are they hypocrites? And Sayyidina Ali said, no, the hypocrites uh, do not remember God often, and these people remember God often So they they said, okay, after exhausting the possible outcomes at that time that they kind of knew of Because you're either Muslim or non-Muslim, of the third category, which is a hypocrite They didn't really have a fourth uh, category But then Sayyidina Ali then gave them the answer after they asked, so what are they then? And I said, Ali, said these are our, our brothers who've transgressed against us. And Al-Habib Abdurrahman gave the answer. And I said to him, what do you think of all these people who say all these things, and you know, really horrible, nasty, all lies. Essentially calling them Kafir. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his reply was the reply of Sayyidina Ali, they are our brothers who've transgressed against us. And I had always, I'd heard Sheikh Hamza mention that often, and I said, ah, now, okay, this is now prophetic. This is what I'm looking for. So that, that reply and my uh, interaction with that one interaction with Hadr Umar, these two kind of cemented in me that this is a place I've kindly found, I, I found in Yemen where I need to, where, I, where it's written for me to go and study. And that's what I did after coming back home for a year working. I went back and studied Arabic for a year, then came back and worked another year, and then went back and spent about nine years studying.
0: Can you talk a little bit about, and you've mentioned a few teachers so far, but can you talk about the teachers that impacted you the most while you were there um, for nearly a decade?
1: Okay, (laughs) big question. (laughs) That in in itself (laughs) deserves a whole session itself. Mm -hmm. Um, After going there for a few days and coming back to the UK, so this is now two thousand two thousand and one. Habib Ali and Jeffrey was now coming to the UK. Uh, well, I had been to the UK a few times, but was coming a bit more uh, a bit more known. I was going around, and he and he came to a city very close to Liverpool, which is Manchester, which is literally twenty minutes down the road on the motorway. Uh, and I went to his talks, and Marshall was very impressed. First time I met Habib Ali. And then I, um, a, a few of my friends, and I decided to follow him around the UK in a car. So we're at whichever city he was in, we'd go follow. Uh, and he, um, to answer your question, his character was prophetic. His character was gentle. His character, uh, you know, these you know, six guys, five four guys let's see. But four four guys driving driving his car around, following him around, and he would tell us to come back to the, in his his house where he was, him and the people that were with him, uh, were staying. And he let you know he let us sleep in the house. The he didn't have to do that. You see, he didn't have he didn't have to do any of these things. And you know, gave you know, the people he was staying with, you know, gave they gave us food, and he allowed us to basically, you know, follow him around. And uh, and that's what we did. We followed him around. We got we had a very good, in class in his open lectures. And uh at, you know, the the more private type of gatherings he had in houses, uh, he kinda of let 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 us in. We were completely strangers, but uh masha'allah, you know we did that as well. Um, also <laughs> Sheikh Muhsan Najjar, also if you're familiar with him, yes. he, he also played a role, uh, a role there as well. Um here in the UK. Um in Tarim obviously MashaAllah, you know, you're seeing, you know, people who are pro- who are carrying kind their of prophetic light. In the, so you are seeing the, the shama'il, the, the way of the Prophet inwardly and outwardly And it's, it's important that we have a lot of people who are outwardly adhere to some of the things that our Prophet did Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, outwardly But inwardly, this is the true measure of a lot of uh, a lot of people And I, and you know, this is how you measure people inwardly How are they inwardly? And how you tell is that their characters, what kind of characters do they have Anyone can get up and give an amazing talk and, 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 and you know, rouse the people and get them to say takbirs, but you know, is there any long-lasting? Uh, uh, is that an, an imprint into that individual spiritually? Is that person a spiritually transformed individual that can go on and carry on the light uh, that, that that he has been given by the sheikh? And so this is one. This is what I was seeing amongst the the hadayib. These are people who had the history of being able to. Uh, uh, you know, give you this light, mm-hmm. uh, or and help you achieve this light, and, and So, uh, and another problem that I to, to you know, put some context is that
0: mm-hmm.
1: people who go away to study, not all of them went to study. This is very important. Mm-hmm. All right, there were a lot of people who went who made hijrah, who left the country that they were in and wanted to stay in a Muslim country. And there were those who did that and went to study, and there were those who specifically went there to study to come back. Each one of these, each one of these categories, uh, the what they got out of the um, whichever institution they found themselves in, or whichever country they found themselves in. Everybody um, got something, got a different experience out from it, depending on what what the intention was. So, for example, those who just went there to soak up to soak up an Islamic environment, uh, in terms of Islamic knowledge, you're not going to get a, lot, a great deal from them because they didn't go there with that intention. Uh, those who went there um, to study and to benefit themselves, uh, mashallah, and those who went there to study to benefit themselves and to come back and benefit others. Uh, you, know, you kind of see you know, a lot more output and a greater need uh, and urgency around them uh, but um but there were a lot of people who went to study and came back and people kind of uh, thought that they you know were you know people were looking for saviors and a lot and a lot of them weren't saviors uh themselves they kind of you know and this has caused caused a lot of problems um in these you know kind of the spiritual abuses that we're kind of seeing now uh, and this goes back to you know people not. Being truthful uh, With their own qualifications And what they did And people kind of exaggerating uh, You know Their experiences And this is kind of a problem uh, That we're kind of having now Inshallah But anyway So uh, I am, Those people who've seen these scholars And studied with these scholars And I, I mean Studying in Dara Mustafa it, It's a very Shafi'i fiqh Or it was then Intensive mm. Institution And it had a, a massive uh, Focus on on uh, spirituality, and on da'wah. And in fact, Da'wah Mustafa has these things called the three maqasid or these three three uh, kind of like principles, um, uh, which is which are all based on the Quran and the Sunnah, but these kind of three focuses that it, uh, it aims to give students who give their 110% is uh, knowledge, uh, spirituality, and da'wah, al-ilm, dawah knowledge, and then spirituality, and then um, da'wah. and these kind of three elements is basically what uh, Habib Umar and all the scholars. And there's there's other the scholars there, by the way. You had the uh, Sheikh Hussein Haddad, Sheikh Umar Khatib, Habib Qadim, and there's other scholars that people don't know about who were there. Sheikh Abdullah Bay Khareesa, uh, Sheikh Uthman, uh, who was also, mashallah, a teacher there as well. There's, there's a whole bunch of teachers, uh, you know, there, mashallah, and they also studied. Uh, at the Rabat, Rabat Tareem, which is also another institute, a very old institute. I studied there as well, alhamdulillah, where was Habib Abdullah bin Shaqih, with, uh, شقي, with fiqh with him. Uh, also, Habib Salim was also teaching there. I, I, I attended his public classes there uh, and benefit uh, from him. Uh, uh, MashaAllah. Um, so, I, yeah, I went through the whole course, Shafi'i Fiqh. Um, starting with the, the essentials of Islam, which is a very basic book in Shafi'i fiqh, right up until the last book, Menhaj uh, al-Talibin by Imam Anowi, that took about two years, I think, uh, having three to four classes sometimes a day with Habib Mashur, who passed away uh, mm-hmm. early on this year, who's a Mufti of Tarim, and the oldest brother of Habib Umar, as well as uh, with other uh Masha'a, other Mashaikh as well, and Nusharul Khatib as well, also. Insha'Allah. And uh, I must ask several teachers not sure who, are, who were um, less well known outside of Turim, but very well known inside uh, Turim as well.
0: Um, what did you what was your goal when you were coming back to the UK? What what did you intend to do? And was <laughs> it hard to leave?
1: Right. Oh, OK. So what was my intention? when I got back it was was the same intention I had when I left which goes back to Ash like Abd Hakim Murad um, his kind of laying down the gauntlet and saying who's going to who's going to go away you know know, move away from their countries from their relative uh, Mm. ease and you know luxuries that they have compared to you know what, what awaits them in the Middle East and go and you know do the hard time to come back and benefit people that's that was my goal mm. what Tareem did is g- gave me more of a focus on how to do that mm. uh, and you know so at that time <clears throat> sheikh Ibrahim of Siatha who who's from Liverpool and sheikh Harun. now they don't they don't they do, they do, they've, they've completed their studies had to come back to Liverpool and we're starting up a few uh, mashallah uh, uh, some very good work here that kind of uh, fitted my agenda of coming back here and just Slotting myself into whatever uh, they were having, uh, they were doing at that particular moment in time. But I, a different journey uh, I was destined to go on, uh, which came in my last two years, in which a mosque you know, and a community in Cardiff, Wales, um, approached Habib Umar when he was in the UK and they asked for an imam mm. uh, from uh, the tradition of uh, Al-Ba'alawi tradition uh, of Yemen, uh, spiritual tradition uh, and Shafi'i tradition, and uh, obviously Ash'ari. And this community uh, was led by, uh, Masha'Allah, had been led by for, for decades by a shaykh called Sheikh called Shaykh Saeed, Sheikh Saeed Hassan Ismail. If you have people listening, if you Google him, Shaykh Saeed. Uh, you will find a a hidden gem, SubhanAllah. and he and this community were um, there were Alawi uh, Sufi, not the Alawi Shia Nasaries uh, of of Sham, the extreme Shia sect. Like, no, these were following the way of uh, uh, the Shavili, Berqawi, uh, uh, Alawi of Mustaghan of, of Algeria, uh, and the, the the story is that. Um, the, again, coming back to the whole Yemeni thing It's all connected The Yemeni sailors who came to the UK In the late 1800s, early 1900s uh, It was started uh, People began to realise that They were starting to lose their identities And, and their religious uh, identities So, um, uh, Sheikh Al-Alawi Who was in Algeria at the time In the late 1900s Who was a great wali of Allah Well known He sends over a Yemeni Imam, Called Sheikh Hassan and he was his, his kind of spiritual uh, <clears throat> representative here in UK. And Sheikh Hassan then comes to the UK and kind of like sees to the needs of these uh, Yemeni and Somali uh, sailors who settled down and saw to their needs and began to establish uh, zawiyas which are religious, uh, spiritual uh, um, uh, places, and mosques. So the first mosque was set up in Cardiff and then in, in Liverpool, and in South Shields, uh, and so, so mashallah very early on the mosques were open um, th- Now people listening in the beginning, re- paying attention, I said that um, the Abdullah Quilliam Mosque in Liverpool was the first mosque That didn't continue because uh, sh- the, the community kind of disbanded and moved further down south so That mosque uh, um, ceased for decades until very recently the mosque had been re-established and, uh, his legacy and works have, uh, mashallah have gained a revival, but um, in that in those decades the, the Yemenis, uh, in particular the Alawi tariqah, uh, which is different to the Ba'alawi Alawi of Hadramout, these you know, through Sheikh Hassan began to open up these um, religious um, places where um, prayers were done, monads uh, with religious uh, uh, parades were done. If you really interesting, if you kind of Google this this history, you'll see, you know, pe- people dressed in beautiful, you know, Islamic clothing, walking with, you know, children, black and white photographs with policemen and you know and women without who weren't Muslim, all going on this parade uh, because they would go to feed the poor at the end of this and the, uh, the Eid March or the Mawlid March. They would feed the poor. Uh, so there's a lot of good work. Um, and Sheikh Hassan. Uh, took underneath his wing a young man called uh, Sheikh Saeed, uh, who uh, was Yemeni, uh, and his mother was, uh, his mother was English. who was half Yemeni, half English, and Sheikh Hassan saw something in him and took him underneath his wing and trained him and made him the Imam of Cardiff. This is the early 1900s, by the way. Oh. And obviously Sheikh Hassan then comes back to Yemen uh, he Many great stories about him He was a certainly a man of God A wali of Allah and Subhan- He was he was actually knighted by the Queen Sheikh Hassan Knighted by the Queen uh, But it's a lot of history people just don't know about sadly So then uh, so Sheikh Saeed Takes up the mantle and For decades, mashallah He kind of uh, looks after the needs of communities here the, uh, Of Cardiff But then he's in his late Late uh, Early eight, early eighties, and now he needs a replacement. He's getting old, and the people they had, there were doing, uh, hadn't had the desired effect that he wanted. So they kind of um, looked for they contacted Habib Umar, who was in the UK at the time, looking for a particularly Imam. Uh, Habib Umar then asked uh, asked uh, Ibrahim Aussie, Sheikh Ibrahim Aussie, you know, if he, you know, if he kind of thought of anybody, and obviously. Sheikh Ibrahim um, mentioned myself, a because I'm near the end of my studies, and B because I'm of a, a Yemeni heritage, and this community is predominantly Yemeni. So kind of kind of worked out itself. There's a lot of um, a lot of common uh, common denominators there that kind of made it made sense that um, you know, particularly since they were looking at somebody from Dara Mustafa to come and lead them. So then the idea then was brought to my attention, and I did istikhara. And a good a good friend of mine, who was studying with me at the time, uh, also gave me a, a good advice. Mustad uh, um, Irfan, Irfan Aqbal, who kind of also convinced me to go, you know, to take this idea after doing istikhara He also gave me some advice about, you know, go and do it. Uh, so then I took it to Habib Umar, and Habib Umar said Bismillah, he gave me the green light. So then I kind of just prepared myself, and I, so then I uh, I left terrain Always knew the day would come. Uh, it was also a, quite a sad day and also mm-hmm. kind of a, a scary moment because you're leaving this um, environment which is has been sterilized. Yeah. And you are now stepping out of this environment into an environment that you that you know what it's like <laughs> because you were there before and it's a lot more difficult now because you know what you're leaving. Mm. And you know what you're going into, <laughs> but I, I kind of prepared myself pretty well, though. I kind of kind of reintroduced myself to many of the things that were uh, kind of forgotten about. I really focused those eight nine years I was there. I really focused on my studies, very focused. But um, well, towards the end, I began to go on Facebook. When I, in my last year or two, began to access Facebook, which never knew what that was. Being horrified. <laughs> I see what I was seeing, which is nothing now, but just, you know, trying to get up on this, I, I, uh, a taste for the dabwa. Because if you can imagine now, I left, I, I, I literally left um, after 9-11. Yeah. Uh, pretty much, uh, although I came back once or twice. Uh, but in, in, I did the whole nine-year, eight-year eight, eight year stretch straight, pretty much. Like wow. Eight-year stretch without going back. Uh, Pride, that I did go back once or twice, but every time I went back, it I always ended up staying for a year, which kind of made me say, "I'm not going to go back until I finish." So, so in that in those years, um, people became more tech savvy, iPhones, smartphones, people on their devices. I remember in the airport coming back, and uh, just people on their computers. And like for me, it was like the Matrix. Everyone was just so absorbed. Uh, so that was a whole thing to get my head around. But so. Sort of, uh, it was a very sad day leaving, but to be honest, a lot of um, a lot of my friends had, had already left over the years. The longer you're there for, uh, the the you know less people you begin to to know because those people who you came with in the beginning, you became you became friends over the years. Inevitably, they would always leave, uh, and there were very few by the time you came to the end of your studies. There were very few people who had began the journey with you, who who were at the end there with you as well. So you know, towards the end, it was kind of like being more of a stranger uh, within the Western community because there a lot more younger people coming. But obviously, in Mashallah, you know, the Mashiach, uh, you know, sad to you know say goodbye to them. And, and, but um, but Mashallah, they followed in many the years after they began to frequent the UK a lot more. And obviously, you've got internet and Facebook, and I regularly follow the Mashiach. On Facebook, on their classes, uh, lectures. So, rarely uh, a week goes by where I don't listen to a particular class or a lecture or mm-hmm. on the Siha. So, I have always had that connection. But yeah, the next phase is basically coming back to the UK and taking up the post as the, uh, <coughs> um, the replacement Imam for Sheikh Saeed, whom after six months of me getting there, uh, he passed away. Wow. Six months into me being literally, he passed away. So, well, and in that, you know, is a lesson. Huh.
0: Um, can you kind of talk about what it was like serving that community that has like such a deep history, <laughs> deep legacy? I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, Cardiff, mashaAllah, is it was a very difficult situation because um, uh, the. The community began, and particularly its religious identity in terms of spirituality become to get affected over mm-hmm. the years. You had very you had foreign elements, uh, very very anti-classical, um, uh, began to creep in to those communities, began to um, really shake uh, people's understandings around things like medhab. So it became very Salafi, basically. The, mm-hmm. the Salafi movement really... Um, um, kicked off heavily and, you know, kind of uh, influenced a lot of people there. And still does, still does, also a very, you have very um, political activists uh, from the Ikhwana Muslimin, uh, and you had other kind of groups there, but more of the traditional, classical understanding of Islam uh, um, really had not had its day there for many, many decades. So that's a massive challenge for me, just dealing uh, with the current uh, uh, mood at that time, which is very, uh, very Salafi, the mosques down the road, uh, you know, were extreme, you know, they were extreme Salafi, um, you know, they can disagree as much as they want, but they were extreme Salafi, uh, when I say extreme, they, they would call the, the mosque that I was serving and, and call myself a Kafir, you know, so these are the Khawarij, I have no problem with calling them Khawarij because they are Khawarij. Um, but, you know, so these are kind of the views that they had. So, this is the environment I was going into. And there were people within, people who were kind of crept into the mosque at that time who were trying to, had an agenda to try to, try to uh, 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 you know, dismantle um, the community's identity. So, this is something I, I knew from day one the, of the challenge I faced. And for five years, it was a, a mashallah battle to, uh, to push that that trend back which alhamdulillah by the permission of Allah that was done and to train up a new generation of people handler which was also done as well and subhanAllah people uh, we had brothers we had one particular student of mine go and spend about two years studying abroad one in Egypt and one in Tareem uh, he's gone back and he's in that community and we kind of um, brought Habayib in to teach in that community we brought several scholars we had Imam Zaid Kub. We had uh, Habib Ali come twice. Uh, mashallah, we had quite a few scholars coming into that community, and just uh, Habib Garvin came, Habib, uh, Habib Abdul Rahman Saqaf came. So we had s- scholars come in and just to give them an injection, uh, and just to let them know that uh, what what they had grown up, uh, particularly elders, that was correct, and this new stuff that they were, that their youngsters were kind yeah. of getting involved in, and being told that this is the correct way. Um, that you know that was kind of you know the wrong way so that was, so that was my battle uh literally I had people there who you know i'd walk in to lead the prayer you a know, you know, small pocket of of young men would leave uh when i take you know when I take time off annual leave, which was about a week <laughs> you <laughs> know, um you know these guys would be in there the whole week, and sometimes i'd come back a bit early uh and catch them off guard and i'd go to lead the prayer they'd leave. It's again, typical khawarij type of uh, uh, behavioral patterns. Uh, and, you know, Cardiff has its sadly, um, there's people from Cardiff um, went and joined ISIS. And if you Google, you'll see that as well. So, yeah, that was it. A, a but I kind of, uh, I went to visit there recently and the summer, and I saw it, saw that it was, in you know, mashaAllah, um, the brief of the five years I spent there I saw the uh, the fruits, mashallah, uh, and obviously of the scholars that we brought in into Cardiff. So were the effects and the legacy was the sort of that place is still preserved. And there was also a a mass education of the community on issues that they had been previously told was haram or shirk or k- or, kufr or bidah. A re-education of, of, of you know through khutbas through classes of just getting them to realize that no, you know that other stuff that you've been told is wrong. And this stuff that you've kind of, your parents and grandparents have grown up on, that you're hearing is all wrong, is in fact right. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, uh, that community I think isn't in, in a better position than when I left it in, inshallah. You know, there's always mm-hmm. space for more, but there's uh, some good brothers and sisters there. Uh, and I, I also began to teach women, which in my community hadn't been done for, for years. I uh, so did that as well. Began to teach women. I think I was one of the few imams uh, that did that in in the whole of that city, Cardiff. And so, but yeah, but Cardiff uh, was a challenge because I wasn't going back to my comfort zone. I was going back to an environment that was largely hostile to the tradition
0: mm-hmm. that
1: I was embody or I attempted to embody.
0: Um, you know, while you were an imam in South Wales, um, you know, there's people from your community. That uh, became radicalized. Um, not necessarily people that were attending the masjid, but just people that were in South Wales. Um, as an imam, like, how did you deal with this sort of stuff as it was unfolding? You know, back in 2013, and and how did you deal with kind of the media in that in that
1: um, context? Okay, right. So, uh, I, I mean, uh, Cardiff is a very interesting place. I think I mentioned. Um, uh, <clears throat> has a unique history uh, in Cardiff of traditional classical islam uh, that is based on a spiritual uh, tradition of islam called uh, to <clears throat> but over the years um, um views that kind of um were anti uh, tools uh, came in and became more dominant uh, and obviously well 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 financed uh, so that kind of like, dominated within that area quite a lot so and there were also uh, groups that um, quite radical um, in their views they were talking about Khilafah and establishing Khilafah and uh, and you start, which obviously Khilafah is you know something part of our faith uh, and so on but the, the way they were going about uh, propagating the idea was very extreme and it belonged to groups that were banned in the Middle East and Muslim-majority countries uh, to begin with. So you had people, um, again, and all these type of uh, uh, contending voices generally found me very difficult to to deal with because I was coming with a a very different uh, 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 view to them. So I was more of a challenge to them and challenge to uh, their kind of followers. And and I challenged their audience as well because they kind of, it was somebody uh, younger, more knowledgeable than them, can speak English, and, and can articulate uh, just as well, if not better, than them. Now, who can kind of push back on some of those things that they're kind of saying? I think no, n- well, no, that doesn't really make any sense, and uh, and historically um, within our faith, you know, uh, what you're saying doesn't really um, hold up. Uh, so there were kind of uh, there were individuals then kind of got swept away in these type of groups, um, and, and sadly Cardiff had a track record of uh, of these groups uh, grooming people and you know people going on to serve lengthy prison sentences, and sadly some even have gone to join uh, ISIS as well. Uh, and so there were um, there were individuals from the from who were very close, they lived very close to the mosque. Who did not attend the mosque started going elsewhere because they were told not to go to the mosque that uh, I'm at because I'm a deviant and kind of, and So they began to go elsewhere, and these wherever they oh. went to, um, kind of contributed towards their views. So they ended up going and join, joining ISIS, and they produced a video, a very very first video, if I'm not mistaken, 2013, in which these the young Western-born English-speaking um, Muslims were now, um, you know, openly calling for people to come and join uh, ISIS. And this is again right at the beginning stages. So, um, two of these individuals, this famous video that came out, two of them were from Cardiff. When, once the media uh, uh, got hold of that information, they began to come to Cardiff, and and nobody wants to speak to them. None of the imams want to speak to them. Um, and each each imam has their reasons. Some of them. Speak probably thought well this has nothing to do with me some of them who it did have something to do with refused to speak Uh, and and obviously myself I'm like well this they were a stone throw away from the mosque but they never came here so you know and we've got nothing to hide so I began to speak to uh, pretty much every major media outlet here in the UK and some as far as Europe and America began to ask questions as to you know, um, what happened here? Who were these young men? And how did they go from being in Cardiff to going to join and calling for, uh, you know, the most dangerous um, uh, terrorist organization who, that uh, used Islam at the time? Uh, so, yeah, so the media, the world's media came and I just began telling them look, you know, these guys had nothing, not, never came here. Uh, had nothing to do with us they went elsewhere and people need to really be focusing on uh, you know, where they went uh, and what they did when they went there and how they what they learnt and you know, where they went so uh, Alhamdulillah like, I, I was quite fortunate in that uh, over the years I, um, you know some of our teachers Habib Ali Jeffrey in particular I did a lot of media uh, stuff so I learned a lot from just watching him uh, obviously Sheikh Hamza watching him uh, and dealing with questions over the years and him kind of having, you know, a a skill in dealing with media and, you know, talking to the media. Because you're talking to non-Muslims and you can't talk as if you're talking to Muslims. And so you've got to, uh, you can't um, water down or um, compromise on your views, but you certainly can present your views in a non-compromising way. But that, but that helps the wider general uh, public, and especially specifically the media, understand what you just saying. So you have to talk in a very intelligent uh, intelligent way that the media kind of understands. Uh, so alhamdulillah, uh, through haib Ali and Sheikh Hamza and others, and also over the years, just reading media, watching media into, um, portrayals of Muslims and thinking, right, if I was being interviewed, I would say this, I would deal with this. and i also I was quite fortunate that I had links with the media anyway, there were um i, I would frequently do um thought for the day for um, uh, for Wales radio. I'd invited to the radio BBC Radio Wales and you know every now and again, and just uh, prepare um, through the help of the BBC, they would help me write out something a thought for the day based on Islam, something connected to the media or some kind of thing that was happening at the time. And they helped me prepare it. They they trained me how to write uh, things and write in in a nice way. So I had already had a bit of experience with the media, so it kind of prepared me pretty well. So all of these things uh, put me in in good good stead for uh, the world media that descended uh, back then.
0: Thank you. You know, so you, you kind of transitioned after this um, role as an imam to becoming a prison chaplain. Can you talk a little bit about that transition and some of the main challenges you were dealing with in the prison system?
1: Right. So after about five years, or towards the end of the, my fourth, fifth year, <laughs> I, uh, cause as the imam in Cardiff, I was doing a uh, pretty much like a one-man show, leading five prayers, doing the Jum'ah, doing the Khutbah, teaching men, teaching women um teaching students at university as well malaysians a large gathering of malaysian students who um began to ask me for classes did quite a lot with them mashallah. um, um funerals marriages divorces mar- marital advice uh counseling so forth did all pretty much uh, all of that type of stuff and and towards the end i was really realizing that um uh, i kind of taking us about as far as I could, mm. uh, and then I decided, right, maybe now's the time to move back to Liverpool um, to continue my next phase, but obviously now I didn't really want to work, <clears throat> or continue continue working within a mosque because um, the challenges um, that our generation faces is that a lot of these mosques are run by people whom are, who don't see eye to eye with us and do not have our outlook and our priorities, uh, you know, mashallah, you know, not, not taking anything away from the sacrifice that they, they made in building the first mosques or establishing mosques, uh, but um, taking it to the next stage. Um, a lot of these, um, a lot of the people, mosques perhaps, uh, not all of them, but certainly, you know, a significant number of them don't have that dynamic outlook. Uh, so kind of, for someone like myself. Who kind of wants to do a bit more? I uh, finally realized, okay, probably it's, it's run its course in how useful I can be there. So then I began to look for something else uh, closer to Liverpool. I'd been out of Liverpool for 15 years. And uh, my good friend Sheikh Ibrahim OCF advised me about going into uh, chaplaincy within the prisons, and he had links there. Uh, so I began to look at that and, and trying and to understand that world a bit more. I'd already done some voluntary work in Cardiff, South Wales, within the prison, so kind of a bit familiar with that. And mashallah, a position came up in Liverpool for a Muslim chaplain in the prison. Uh, So I I prepared myself, uh, spoke to many, uh, several chaplains, Muslim and non-Muslim, who helped me prepare for the interview. And then I uh, went for it, alhamdulillah, and and got got the role, Uh, and then obviously moved back to Liverpool, started working within the prison. Um, The prisons are very unique in that they are a community, they are a gated community within themselves, so you've got the larger uh, 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 community of a city and then you have a prison community, which are a community unto themselves and have rules and laws and regulations uh, both imposed upon them and that which they impose upon themselves just by the nature of being within prison. So it was quite a unique situation. I had to learn a lot there uh, of prison life and, you know, how things work. Uh, one of the biggest, and obviously as a Muslim chaplain, I was dealing specifically with Muslims, but generally the the general population of prisoners, Muslim or non-Muslims, who kind of needed some spiritual uh, mm. guidance, uh, or advice, or just someone to speak to. So that was, a, you know, a big role. So that was quite a very different role. And I, generally I found that overall, I was treated with more respect within the prison than I, than I had whilst working as an imam uh, in a mosque. I found myself being challenged a lot less within prison uh, from criminals <laughs> than I had from people who weren't criminals, uh, you know, outside, outside who just very disrespectful. Uh, but so I found it um, in some regards uh, a lot more easier working within within the prison because there's a, a level of respect there That they kind of have to give you whether they want to give it to you or not is a different matter. The main thing that the main thing is that they give, they give you they kind of respect you uh, for your role. And I did see that a lot more uh, overall, generally speaking, whilst in prison than I did within uh, working as an imam. And that's not, not to say that you know generally working as an imam you're gonna uh, you know everybody is disrespect. No, but but uh, there was certainly um, the the frequency was a lot less whilst in prison. And I, you know, that tells you a lot about the state of some of our communities uh, and the work that needs to be done uh, within our communities. Um, but yeah, some of the major challenges were mental health, um, people not having, people having very difficult upbringings that kind of mm-hmm. uh, colour their worldview. Um, you know, people coming from, you know, uh, families in which there was abuse physical sexual abuse that kind of affects affects them uh, people just being greedy mm-hmm. you know making wanna wanna make a lot of money <coughs> through whatever ways or means they, they they want to just you know so it kind of a uh, wasn't it was not one size fits all but it was, you know human beings are very complex uh, creatures and a series of factors that can influence a particular individual and of course that they take their life take their life in Uh, so it's very unique so that you know the human state uh, I got got to see uh, another side of the human condition that many people perhaps do not see inshallah yes
0: Subhanallah. um while you were working as a prison chaplain, you also or you had to speak with um, people that were charged with terrorism, people that had been radicalized. What does that conversation look like?
1: Are they receptive
0: to listening to you? Is uh, well, again,
1: this is very interesting because this is, uh, again, it seems, if you follow you know, my journey, it seems like this dealing with people who have radical views <laughs> seems to come up again and again. I'm just, I'm kind of realizing a lot more now, just reflecting on and my journey so far, it seems to be like a something that I've kind of uh, I always seem to cross paths with, and I think this is a reflection of the Muslim world that some of the loudest voices uh, that we kind of hear or have heard for the past thirty something years have kind of be the more radical, uh, uh, you know, fringes. Uh, at least historically, they'd be you know they'd be ref- referred to as more radical. Uh, um, fringes, certainly not, not mainstream, and that the mainstream has kind of been marginalized mm-hmm. a lot through these very heavy funded loud voices uh, who are very tech savvy, that's kind of a problem that you know, that we kind of more traditional uh, minded Muslims are not very tech savvy and quite always the last to get on to, um, generally speaking, although we've got better over the years, the last to get to, you know, take things as media, take things like media, social media, YouTube, Instagram, kind of very, very uh, shy uh, from media, from media or social media exposure. Whereas these kind of voices, uh, they will use anything and everything at their disposal. So, yeah, and something that um, Habib Ali uh, uh, and Habib Umar have endorsed this type of work where are kind of working with, you know, people who uh, found themselves in prison because of these views and trying to get through to them uh, in ways, uh, and basically trying to explain to them through the spirit of, you know, Tareem, you know, what the ethos of Tareem, and trying to bring it in a way where they can understand. Uh, so this kind, of, this is a big thing, yeah. So yeah, I did come across individuals who um, they were in prison for views, and I, and I'd come across people who had come from prisons in which um, were were run by Muslim gangs uh who had very radical views themselves these- t- kind of prison gangs more high security uh you know um prisons and a lot of these were run by a lot of the wings were run by muslims, so you kind of had to uh, in order to survive in some of these prisons if you were a muslim you kind of had to uh you know de facto mm-hmm. take on you know uh, the group's uh motto and outlook and for some for some for most muslims uh they kind of just went in their phase and got out of it uh but for some who you know people who went into prisons for um, violent criminal offenses robbing stealing and you know prison uh, bank robberies and stuff like that who weren't very particularly religious uh now having to um absorb uh, some of these views and, and kind of fit into these gangs and then obviously over the years becoming more Hard-lined in their views and taking very extreme views, and then being released years later, and that kind of causes a problem. But some of these guys I kind of come across, um, um, you know, and yeah, they were very extreme in their views. The, the concept of following a madhab uh, was so alien, you know, the idea that you you follow one of the four schools was very alien to them. They just didn't you know, completely against that. Very ignorant of what it what it actually means to follow madhab. And they've just sold, you know, the usual lines. Um, Spirituality is kind of, um, it's interesting, there were some whom kind of were searching for spirituality and and, um, coming from a tradition that was very spiritual, like the the way of the Ba'alois and Tareem and Hadramaut is very, very spiritual. I was able to offer them a glimpse of what our faith uh, has and can produce. And I did see some of them change, you know, quite radically. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, changed and come come out of um, potentially very extreme uh, views of, of Islam <clears throat> that that they kind of absorbed uh, from being within prison. And now, if they come out of prison, uh, people of, of dhikr, people of learning, uh, people of, uh, of nur, of light, uh, people of guidance, and uh, people of rahmah. That's something else that a lot of these prisoners are not given I'm uh, not, not taught enough about mercy and Rahma mm. And love These kind of uh, thing Which are part and parcel of the spirituality of Islam uh, You know They're kind of starved from that And the soul needs that And that's something that Habib Ali told me You know the last thing he said to me When, when was the last time that some of these prisoners That you can, that, that you work with When was the last time that any of them was told That Allah loves them mm. you know, When was the last time they were told That you know, Allah uh, loves you uh, so, so these type of things, you know, when you're kind of taking the it's, it's the beauty of having a connection to, it, to these type of teachers and, and, and this tradition uh, is that, um, you know, you can always, this, these meanings can be trickled down to people who uh, perhaps will never come across these type of views, uh, which is unfortunate. But yeah, inshallah.
0: Sure. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, especially that last bit of um, what Habib Ali said. Um, that you're also a university chaplain in Liverpool as well, I believe, right?
1: Yes, so the transition from the prison um, now to to dealing with students at university, which in some ways is more challenging uh, because you're getting back to a uh, less disciplined audience. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, within prisons, you know, they kind of have to respect you as a staff member, but they also kind of... um, uh, they do respect you because you're there to help them because they 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 would look at the prison chaplain as being separate to the prison officers and the system generally they would look at the prison chaplains as being on their side because mm. you know, we were we were the compassion that they would never see from uh, from generally speaking from the prison establishment we were the compassionate side so we were the ones that would break news to them that you know if someone passed away in their families we would want to tell them we were the ones that would sit with them afterwards to help them through like we were the ones that would sit with them if they were trying to commit suicide we were the ones that would um, uh, you know be the humane side uh that they kind of often kind of forget about. Uh, so there was, kind of, there was kind of there's kind of a built-in respect there already and now and again some challenges but you know, nothing major because they they kind of um uh, there's a respect there anyway that the chaplain in prison normally has. But so now, uh, for me, it was kind of like um, time to uh, move on after spending a couple of years within prisons to kind of move on to something else. And uh, uh, university chaplain positions uh, kind of kind of developed, uh, which is always always had always been a kind of a um, an interest of mine working at universities because when I when I was when I was at university, that's where kind of. Uh, my interest in learning, my faith, more seriously developed, and at university, that's where kind of people's views develop, and that's where people's interests kind of develop, and kind of uh, sets them uh, on their future uh, paths. You know what, what happens at university because now you kind of you're in this um, melting pot of views, and you come across different things. So I had very um, uh, very romantic view of <laughs> university life. Uh, so kind of like it's kind of nice getting back to that again, going uh, back full circle, so to speak. So yeah, uh, so the opportunity came up uh, and alhamdulillah I went for it. And yani, thanks to Allah subhanahu wa taala and the of Allah, uh, I got the role as, uh, as a Muslim Muslim advisor and the chaplain to the you know, University of Liverpool and to Liverpool John Moores University because there's two major universities here. So I actually advise uh, the university on policies They have a lot of Muslims. Uh, they've always, universities always have, and always kinda of always will. But so there's a lot of um, a lot of policies that need to be, you know, needed to have a Muslim perspective on. Doing the khutras, teaching classes, um, continuing the chaplaincy pastoral work that kind of developed whilst in prison and whilst as a being an Imam and kind of and adapting it to students' needs at university. So that was kind of a big thing. So, um, but so the challenges kind of faced at university students' level that kind of unique is that you're dealing with Muslims from all over the world and you're dealing with um, uh, groups and sects and views that you wouldn't get in prison uh, and perhaps you wouldn't get or you wouldn't come across too much as an imam it's perhaps the most diverse uh, group of, of Muslims that you're ever gonna come across. And again, I think I mentioned this previously that uh, coming from the tradition that I, I come from, mm. that I, I have, I've never been in my comfort zone ever. So <laughs> No, throughout, I've never been in my comfort zone. So when I say my comfort zone, and um, I haven't always had the luxury of being around people who are like-minded Mm-hmm. Uh, who come from a similar background, a similar tradition, as myself. Which therefore then you kind of have to uh, adapt uh, in in dealing with the people. This is this is, this is prophetic in itself because the mm-hmm. Prophet ﷺ صلى 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 uh, address people according to their levels. So, you know, there's no point in me talking about Habib Umar, Habayib, and these type of things to people who just don't know anything about that like You know, uh, and, and nor do our teachers... Um, ask us to do that in fact they tell us the exact opposite don't do that which is kind of one of, one of, one of the criticisms I have some of our some of the brothers who go and, and study in certain places they kind of come back and kind of uh, you know talk a lot about these type of things uh, which is good if, if the crowd is open uh, to that but most people aren't so therefore we have to find other ways of, of reaching out reaching to these different communities and, um, and societies and and that's kind of something I had to develop very quickly. And I was kind of prepared uh, also before leaving Tareem. I was prepared for that anyway. Uh, many many teachers that I sat with kind of said to me, look, don't go and uh, think you are you're leaving Tareem and going to recreate exactly what you're seeing here over there, because that's not going to work. But you kind of take ha- you have to take the spirit of Tareem and, and kind of adapt it, which is kind of does make sense. Uh, and the fact that you laughed is interesting a lot of people don't a lot of people go and try and recreate the atmosphere which is i understand that uh but not everybody uh is going to be open to that i I want to uh uh, you know take part in that so anyway so i kind of had to uh take the very the broad principles that i learned and uh, establish uh you know kind of establish a way of dealing with university students so again you're dealing with everything and anything in between you get the very liberal very secular very uh, right wing, you know, you, you get, again, you're getting your political activists, you're getting your Salafis who don't want to pray behind you because, you know, you're a kafir or mushrik. Uh, and then you've just got the vast majority of Muslim students who just want to pray and want to learn a bit about their deen and want somebody, somebody who can, uh, who, who's there to answer their questions when they're having problems. And they, they tend to be the overall majority. So, yeah, so I began to teach. Um, so, I began to introduce um, concepts um, like Imam Ghazali, introducing mm-hmm. people, who's very important, you know, regardless of what people's um, views may be. But the, the essence of what he's talking about is purification of the heart, refining one's character. I think you know yeah, Muslims can agree on the principles that, you know, on that principle, yeah, that's something that our deen does focus on. Uh, perhaps we may differ on how we go about doing that, and obviously, you know, the the more established tradition of spirituality to solve, uh as laid out by Imam Ghazali, is perhaps the more um, tried and tested method that has, be, has yielded results. Uh, you know, people can differ on that, but yeah. So, kind of introducing people to that, indu- introducing people to traditional Islam, inducing people to uh, uh, following and uh, uh, madhab. for me, one of the biggest challenges again it's social media people just google que- questions and find the answers on google and this is something that uh, uh, social media generation millennial generation in particular <clears throat> are very keen on doing um, they find the answers themselves and which kind of uh, puts them into a very difficult situation and, and can, most time uh, most of them do not know where to look and who to look to listen to, so they become very confused, and I come across a lot of that at university. So what I what after I'm going into my fourth year now, uh, what I kind of realized that I need to develop some kind of uh, of course whereby students can um, understand their faith because I couldn't I couldn't be uh, you know recreating you know, the wheel every year you know because students every two three years they'll come and go. So I kind of I was getting asked the same type of questions year in year out. So I began to um, think a bit more seriously about people asking me the same questions. How can I have something already pre-planned for them to go and look at and benefit from, rather than me having to sit an hour or two, <coughs> several times <coughs> a month with different individuals? So I began, So I developed a series of lectures called "Simplifying the Chaos." It's about about 14, uh, 14 lectures. Uh, myself and some of the st- some students uh, helped me develop, which is basically um, a historical look at how Islam has been uh, preserved mm. and transmitted, uh, understood, preserved, and transmitted by the vast majority of scholars for the vast majority of time. And the, the, so that, that question is very exact, you know. But the reason why I, I chose that is that um, people, you know. People nowadays just don't know I mean, uh, that we that madhabs uh, the former Madhahib, was the backbone and is the backbone and will continue to be the backbone of our Sharia in terms of understanding our faith. So I, I basically I spent 14 lectures uh, uh, explaining the Hadith of Jibreel, the famous Hadith of Jibreel, in which Jibril uh, comes in the home of a man to the Prophet Muhammad asked wasallam, asks the Prophet, so it was the questions, uh, what is Islam? And then we have the five pillars, what is Iman? we have the six uh, pillars of Iman, and what is Ihsan, uh, which is to worship Allah, if you see him. So I began to uh, look, a historical look at how has Islam been understood in the context of the five pillars, and and who are the scholars that kind of uh, preserve that, and what did that preservation look like? And obviously, that led on to the development of the Madhabs, Iman, you know, the six pillars of Iman, uh, what subject, uh, really dealt with iman which is aqidah or tawhid or ilm al-kalam and who were the scholars of what were the med- the madhhabs that, that kind of uh, uh, dealt with that with. so historically they were um, ahl-hadith or the etherees n- not the anthropomorphists of them but the more you know, traditional etheree uh, ahl-hadith not, not to be confused with the ahl-hadith uh, the political movement in the subcontinent but the, the more classical historical ahl-hadith or etherees or Han- hanbali's. Uh, and then you have the Ash'aris and the Maturidis, who the, the Ummah have kind of agreed upon their understanding So developing that and also developing the idea of Ihsan to worship Allah So if you see him and if you don't see him, know that he sees you How was that achieved? What subject matter historically uh, was developed as a as a, uh, as a reaction to developing that experience Which is historically... Tasawwuf or tazkiyah whatever you want to call it and just basically um spending some 13-14 lectures um, explaining that Uh, so the idea was answering two questions the first question how was islam iman and ihsan been understood uh, preserved and transmitted by the vast majority of scholars for the vast majority of time why did i uh, ask that specific question well uh, the vast majority, because it's Allah's promise to preserve this din. wa yeah? Allah says in the Quran that we have revealed this remembrance and we will preserve it. And my ummah will not come to agree upon, uh, come to agree upon misguidance and other hadith. And the fact that Allah has and will and continue to can continue to preserve this din, uh, that this deen will not suffer the suffer the fate of other. Uh, um, traditions that come before Christianity and Judaism, which kind of people change them. This deen has been divinely protected. But what what did this divine protection look like? And how was, and how did Allah uh, um, do this? And what, you know? um, So yeah, that was kind of uh, trying to answer that vast, and again, the vast majority of scholars, why am I looking at the vast majority of scholars? Because the vast majority of scholars would Represents Allah's uh, protection. You see, this is the idea that uh, how does Allah protect this deen? Through the ulama, the scholars are the inheritors of the Prophet. The ulama are Allah's manifestation, are the preservation of the vast majority of ulama for the vast majority of our time. Why do I say the vast majority of time? Because it's, historically, there's been sects that I have been mean, quite politically powerful, Mu'tazilites and others. Mm-hmm. But they kind of you know fallen by the wayside o- o- over the centuries and they're no longer um known about all of their views come and go but they no longer have the have the power that they, ha- they had but what and what remained is mainstream classical islam and so the vast majority of scholars over the vast majority of our time that is Allah's manifestation of his preservation of the deen. to imply otherwise would would when i say otherwise it, Saying that the vast majority of scholars For the vast majority of time Have all been wrong For me And from very very early on even As young as, as my early teens I realized that that could not be mm. Something that I subs- I subscribe to yeah? The vast majority of ulama For the vast majority of time Have all been wrong And now my shaykh or my group Have found out you know, what, what has Allah been doing all this time Then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where is Allah's preservation it, What has just been you know, the train's been running running down the wrong track all these all these centuries. I, I can't accept that.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I,
1: I and, and I refuse to accept that. Uh that's kind of um answering that question, which, you know, um uh, leads you then to the answers that, you know the madahib and the schools of Aqidah and the spiritual uh paths or turq up to Solf, they're the kind of the things that have um have uh, have been the way that Allah has preserved this deal, and the fact that the vast majority of ulama for the vast majority of time have subscribed to one of the four mazahib have subscribed to one of the three ways uh, three um, ways in schools of, of aqeedah the Athari Hanbali Al-Hadith or the Sha'ara and have accepted or unfollowed and, and vast majority have followed a spiritual path and that's historically verified and just you know, even non-Muslims, uh, you know, P- PhDs, you know, masters, and professors, even they know that. You know, they simply you know, nothing there. But I found that Muslims were very ignorant of that. So I spent that time uh, uh, answering that question. And the second question was how to recognize who is an authority and who is not. So mm-hmm. a series of lectures that I developed answering those questions and. Um, I would deliver those lectures. They're on YouTube. Uh, on YouTube as well, If you, uh, I can give you the link, okay. inshallah. Uh, and there's a, a Google Drive that has the slides. So I developed slides. So essentially, it's 20 years' worth of my own research into uh, why why I'm following the Islam that I'm following. You see? And that's right. So I had 20 years' worth of research put into lectures. And I hadn't finished them because of the COVID kicked in. The university kind of shut down. But then I went to talking about... Um, um, the, uh, why is it that today, at today's age, that these um, accepted views and historical outlooks have now kind of been forgotten and people are kind of following something else? Uh, where it's in, in fiqh, we know, the idea of following a madhab, although a lot more popular now, and that this goes back to the mid-90s through Sheikh Hamza and Sheikh Nur and Abdul Hakim Murad and the other Mashaikh who kind of made it more fashionable. Dare I say, to kind of follow MedHeb, which brought his, which brings its own problems. But uh, nowadays, I've found that young people are still a bit confused. So, kind of like uh, uh, recreating that kind of movement again to get, getting people to understand that the reasons for having a, med- a MedHeb and reasons for following the schools of Akita and the reasons for following the spiritual path. And then, why, why is it that people nowadays aren't following this? I mean, why why are the voices the most loudest on social media or, how, or the most well-funded voices that aren't saying this and what's behind that? So I began to look at, I, I had a very detailed lecture on Shi'as, historical look at Shi'as, found there's a lot of ignorance around Shi'as. And then I looked at um, Khawarij and how they've come about, um, uh, introduced uh, the warnings that our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam mentioned about the Khawarij Introduced that to a, a generation that haven't haven't come across that, uh, mm. and then began to develop it into um, the Islam that kind of people find online today, uh, mm. and why that is very different. So I was kind of taking it the direction I was going to take it in is the uh, uh, the more common commonly heard views or, or groups that are very active nowadays, uh, where they've come from, and the views that they have, and historically. Uh, why they are different to mainstream classical Islam. That's why I was kind of taking it, but I kind of got stopped there, uh, obviously through the COVID, but that's where I was going uh, with it. But I can give you the links to that inshallah on, on yeah, YouTube. i put
0: in the description. I think that's really important. Um, and it's so clear that uh, you, like this adaptability you're talking about, like you really paid attention to the issues that are kind of on the ground and, and really, uh, you know, created a course that was very tailored to them. Um, you kind of hinted at this um, earlier, but you you mentioned that you have a bit of a critique of some of the um, like more traditional um, Islam and how it's uh, kind of taught, or um, some of.
1: Uh, I wouldn't like, say how how it's taught. Not, yeah, not, say, not how it's uh, taught. It's not the right. Uh, how have uh, adapted it for um for the UK for the Western setting. Within that traditional crowd, you've got um, those whom are the, you know, the purists, mm-hmm. kind of copy and pasted. For example, you've got people who've copy and pasted, uh, you know, the experiences of Tareem, and that kind of brought it, and kind of want to reestablish uh, that uh, um, safety zone around mm-hmm. themselves to, to maintain that spiritual integrity that they had over there. And from day one, I've never been in my comfort zone. I've been <laughs> in a mosque, in a community, where you know a stone throw away another mosque is calling me kafir i've got a community who kind of very suspicious about me at the, at the end of five years kind of you know much warm to me and level uh, and then i moved into to the prison service working with on the prison service where again different people and then i moved into university which is very diverse so i've never been in the traditional crowd where i can you know where i can just you know, Wear the shawl and the ring and the <laughs> turban and talk about the Hab- Habib Omar, Habib Ali, and the, you know the wonderful things, uh, the experiences that I had with them, because people do not have uh, um, sufficient experience or background right. to to even understand what it is you're actually referring to. Mm-hmm. So I was from day one; I'd always uh, had to adjust and shift gears, and I think um, that's actually that's actually taught me. Uh, to maneuver and to work in places where um, a lot of our, a lot of, the, uh, of my brothers and sisters have, you know, who went abroad to study um, simply have have not had uh, haven't had to do that. You see, I've always have to. Uh, I've always learned to shift gears, not to compromise. I'm never compromising what I believe and right? my own experiences. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not. A, it's about um, packaging it in a way that is digestible. For those listening, yeah, because I think all too often we are saying things that, um, even in even in Tareem, these things weren't saying, weren't we're spoken about publicly. It's maybe a certain miracle. We believe miracles part of our aqidah, it's there, you know, we're not gonna shy away from that. But how appropriate are uh, some of these things for the western uh, audiences that are listening that you know, uh, you know, their challenges uh, is about you know, mental health or you know, self harming. Or doubts in their faith, or you know, doubts in their sexuality, or whatever it is, whatever it may be. You know, so these are the, But I think a lot of our brothers haven't had that uh, experience. So that for me, I've, I've kind of been blessed that I've gone. I've been in the community. and You can't get more diverse than being an imam of a community. Then I've gone to the prison community, very different to the first community. And then I've moved. In, I moved into the university community. So these are three extremely diverse groups in and of themselves that you have to adapt to but by taking in the spirit of the teaching you've had mm. and adapting it in ways in which those audiences can appreciate. That's what I've been trying to do. By always yeah, you know it's, yeah, it's, part of my... it's difficult for others though who don't have never had to do never had to do that. So they they may say things that you know that you know are not appropriate. That's that's kind of my my gist. And I think that's where the challenge then becomes because what for example in turim uh, it has a very unique tradition, a unique culture, and a, u- a unique set of uh, um, ways of doing things that is very different to perhaps, um, you know, another city an hour away in Yemen, in mm-hmm. the south of Yemen. So the kind of, the idea of taking, and I, I understand that, you know, look, um, you want to recreate that atmosphere. I, I get that. And, uh, I understand that. But it may not always be. Uh, the wisest choice. So what, what we found, uh, for example, in Tarim, the students from Indonesia and Malaysia kind of took uh, aspects of Tarim, of Yemen, of Hadramaut uh, and the Islam that was practiced there and kind of adapted it um, over many centuries, uh, adapted to the, uh, their cultural uh, identities and the challenges that they faced. Uh, and I think for us here now, we're kind of like... Uh, we're in the process of having to maybe do that, but, but uh, taking uh, things, you know, you can't take the Mauritanian uh, model, for example, in its entirety and copy and paste it to uh, uh, Manhattan <laughs> or to London, it's, it's, it's not gonna work. And I think uh, initially some of the, some of the uh, initial returnees Mm-hmm. overseas after many many years can kind of try to do that and found it very difficult even those who who came from places like you know syria or from Tarim or other places can kind of found it uh, very challenging and um, truth be told they weren't very, very they weren't very uh, successful uh but i think over the years there's been more of a a more mature understanding of how to do that and certainly uh, the teachers in Tareem were um we very keen on us, um, and they would tell us specifically: do not, when you go back, do not call to the mm. ba but call people through it. What does that mean? Don't go back and start talking to people. Oh, have you heard this and have you that? I mean, in your private, you can do as much, I mean, whoever you, and you can talk about you know, to your heart's content. Uh, <laughs> but, but don't go <clears throat> to the general public. <clears throat> and being able to talk about this and talk about this and talk about these things but use the way of the tariqa of the, the spiritual path of the Baalawis and call people through it don't call people specifically to it mm-hmm. that you have to follow this tariqa and this tariqa is the best and this and blah 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 and, and you're perfectly entitled to believe that in and of yourself just like anybody else is entitled to believe that about their group or their movement or whatever they have. Everyone has that freedom uh, since it's, which is something that we enjoy living in, 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 the, in, the, in the West. But uh, our teachers specifically told us, do not call to the tariha specifically, but call people through it, through your manners, through your character. Uh, that's what, and, and um, I think um, that's kind of uh, something I've tried to focus on, but I think a lot of people have struggled in understanding that. And um, just because somebody spends a certain period of time abroad with scholars does not mean they've understood
0: Mm.
1: everything from those scholars. And does not mean that they are the final product. you oftentimes what will happen is that people who've gone there and haven't really studied uh, will will come away with a very limited exposure uh, and come back and people will kind of put them on the pedestal and then you have problems because the individual who you've placed on a pedestal in and of themselves, is still the same, angry, uh, nefs-oriented individual, just a bit more knowledgeable. Uh, uh, but but deep down, they're still uh, still the same individual uh, in, in their heart. Uh, and I think that, um, that's kind of a problem. And that I've spoken to several people who've said, who've said that um, they as organizers, they've kind of had their fingers burnt because um, they kind of um, put people on the pedestal uh, and kind of realized afterwards that they were still the same person uh, They when they left several years ago. Just now, uh, they dress differently and were able to speak uh, beautiful things, but their character was essentially still the same, mm. the same character, and perhaps even, even, some people even worse because now you've got this exposure and you've got this fame, and people have good hearts, you know, general Muslims, they have good hearts, they kind of want, you know, they kind of think the world of you, particularly if they if you spend time with people who who deserve to be thought the world of? Uh, it's by you know it's kind of like guilty by association. You know that you're with them with these scholars, so therefore you must be like them. And Most of us aren't like that, uh, uh, and some of us perhaps need to have need to be reminded of that. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I don't know if that's kind of answer. So there, there is a, a kind of critique of, of the traditional crowd. Uh, I myself, I've, you know, I'm from that crowd, but I we. Um, it becomes an in-out crowd. So if you're not part of the, our crowd, you kind of, you know, you're not part of the group, not part of the gang, it's not part of my tariqa, you know, spiritual path, and you're out. You're not in. You're not really following, you know, the way, and you're kind of um, like not going to um, develop in your Islam as quick as I am because I'm in this path, and you're in a different path. And uh, our path is closest, um, and our Shaykh has the more. I'm more uh, higher rank with Allah. So you get all this type of stuff, and you get the same thing with madhabs. My madhab is better than your madhab. So uh, it's a human response of, of bigotry, and um, you'll find that an individual like that uh, would be like that if he was if he was following a football uh, <laughs> or a soccer group or a musical group or wh- whatever he or she may be following. It's just, mm-hmm. uh, it's just that's the way they are. You see, just now they're following something religious, so they kind of be be bigoted uh, and just following that. And, and that way is the best way. It's more a reflection of their own uh, souls and their own personalities than than of the thing of the following. But kind of this uh, ta'asub or bigotry uh, is problematic, and it does it does cause a huge disservice, and it gives. People who are not from the traditional crowd, the political activists or the more of the Salafi, non-Madhab, non-Ash'ari-Math, really non solve crowd, kind of ammo uh, to critique and say, ah, these guys are kada wa kada. And they suffer from the, so, in the same uh, Ill- illnesses as we do because it's a human illness. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: You know, how do we in our own lives have that um, level of adaptability that our focus just isn't on, you know, having a sterilized environment, but really um, meeting people where they are and um, trying to follow the path of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but, um, you know, not in a way that kind of alienates other people.
1: Yes, and, and this is one of the biggest problems that the traditional crowd uh, is kind of criticized for the kind of alienate people. Uh, and I think, I, I can only say um, for me personally, why I've kind of resisted that, and for me, it's um, my teachers, uh, specifically Hai Ali, more so Hai Ali uh, and others, and other mashaykh, um, who kind of focused on this particular issue of um, not being the typical stereotypical uh, you know traditional crowd, but being open. And if so, you know, I learned by example, giving example Hai Ali Jeffrey, for example, at an airport in Yemen and huge, he walks into the airport and a huge crowd comes around to shake his hand which is understandable <laughs> and in a corner there's a guy sat there who's not from the from the traditional um, you know uh, traditional understanding of Islam perhaps a very salafi understanding of Islam and Haiba ali what does he do there's a crowd of a dozen people around him shaking his hand he actually avoids those he actually walks past actually leaves those people goes and shakes the hand of this particular individual who sat there Mm. you know perhaps people haven't really paid attention to but he's paid attention to he goes Mm. and shakes his hand and and that speaks volume now whether or not that particular that particular individual shook his hand seemed a bit shocked and kind of just you know put his head back down again which allah if it it impacted him or not only he knows but it impacted me i think the ethos behind that is that yes the crowd the crowd is there you know know, preaching to the converted but what about these people over here on the corner and the way of our prophet was the -hmm. people who and he you know he was interested in getting the people who weren't interested in his message he was interested in getting them interested in his message it was about that is da'wah da'wah is about reaching people who weren't interested Mm -hmm. and, and how you do that so for me it was learning through example also that the principles that i'm Teachers set, through, set to us, particularly in my last couple of years the, being in Turin, teachers really focused on uh, uh, calling people uh, not to the way of, not calling people to Habib Umar or not calling people towards Habib Ali or not calling people towards a tariqah, but calling people through the tariqah to the Prophet. Mm. That's, and that's key. So I kind of had a lot of focus and preparation uh, sitting with teachers and, you know, kind of. Uh, um, looking at examples of how to do that, looking at examples of how the Habib have done that historically, uh, and obviously Habib Ali uh, is a very good example of that, and also Habib Umar when he goes abroad, which people don't have ta- don't really have um, opportunities to see how he is. Uh, but he's very different Habib Umar when he's in Tareem, very different when he's outside of to and very in, in, you know, particularly in the West, he kind of uh, um, adapts uh, without compromising the Sharia. But the Sharia is very is, is very vast. I think people need to understand this that the Sharia isn't just my madhab, uh, but there's several other madhab, uh, and within these madhab there are views. Uh, it's about um, uh, administrating the correct the, the 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 valid view within these schools, uh, and giving it uh, you know, person by you know person by person, each person you know, may need a particular view or a particular medicine to remedy their particular situation. So that, that. also um, see, look at the Prophet's life deeply and seeing how the Prophet dealt with people, uh, those who were against him. Uh, and then kind of just, uh, um, I can all I can say is the teachers that I have, uh, for example, you know, Hayy Ali, Hayy for example, um, they are people who are very open. Uh, they are not your typical uh, Sufi tariqa Mashaikh You see and, and that's not their way uh, Their way is very open They will sit with You know Movie stars They will sit with The drug dealer Drug taker They will sit with The, the wali of Allah they will, they will sit with Everybody And anybody Anybody that w- is willing To listen to them They will talk to And they will give time And I saw this More so from Hayyub Ali uh, Because I had more interactions uh, mm-hmm. Seeing him By example uh, you know the, the many times he's come to the UK uh just watching him on, on Egyptian TV when he talks to interviews people and he's sat there talking to um, people who've left Islam and he's calling them my brother. You're my brother and they're like, well I've left Islam, how can I be your brother? And he goes, well you're my brother in humanity. So these these type of meanings and examples I think mean, have always you know quite have resonated with me. Uh I've kind of just taken them uh, and they're, they're quite important because when you when you're sat studying classical works, your you're, you are kind of your mind is set in a very um, um, medieval mindset, and sometimes you can kind of need to snap out of that and realize, okay, you're living in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one soon to be, and you know uh, the tradition that you've been you've immersed yourself in within the books academically, the world that they that they that they address has changed radically you mm. see so you're kind of taking um the you know the and, and the vast majority of it is still useful don't get me wrong but i think the, the ethos uh the way the, the scholars of the past wrote in their books i think that's kind of uh, 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 students have absorbed uh, some of those ways and kind of like you know kind of like kind of reproduced it in their way in, in how they speak now how they are right now and it's like that world that they're speaking from no longer exists, and you're kind of like. Uh, and again, look, I'm somebody who studied Shafi'i Fiqh for several years. It's not. I'm not uh, watering down the Sharia. I, you know, I, I generally take the more stronger position within my school personally, but I just I realize that people, mm. you kind of have to adapt. Uh, you know, to people's views, and you know, if if it, if somebody's on the, on the verge of leaving Islam. Then if it, and then khalaas, if it means coming out the shafi madhab to find an opinion that's going to keep him in, even outside of the four schools to keep that him or her in in Islam, then you know, I'm I'm definitely uh, going to do that. And That's something that I saw my own teachers do, mm-hmm. It kind of shocked me a lot of the times. Like oh, <laughs> they've gone out of the school after the madhab, and like you know that's understandable for me having that opinion because that's the world I was in. Right. Uh, or the moment that I was kind of experiencing, which is you know kind of you building you building yourself up understanding a particular a tradition. But then uh, as you get older and more mature, uh, I, I you was know, speaking to a friend of mine who I was studying with in Tarim, and I said to him recently that you know uh, I could per- I could perfectly well see my the younger self, my younger self, arguing with me right now in <laughs> my views. And I, you know just, that's just the, the, the nature of life. You get older, you become more mature, and you know you expand. If you are, if you are, if yourself at twenty is going to agree with yourself at forty-two, then you know you kind of wasted your time because you should have twenty-two years more uh, experience of life and more maturity. Uh, so I kind of, I, you know, I, you know, and you know, it's just it's part of us, you know, having that. Uh, Maturity of life and growing And having Mashaikh, I think for me just having scholars who are Who are who are very prophetic in outlook and They embody the prophetic way In their very nature And obviously Haib Ali and Haib Umar They take that from their Mashaikh Because their Mashaikh were like that And you can see the, you know, the results of that uh, You know, people directly related to them And people indirectly related to them uh, you know subhanAllah uh, have benefited from them so so in a nutshell, in a nutshell uh, it's about having the right people around you who embody this mm. and you yourself being mature and thinking deeply and looking at the prophetic life of the, of the prophet and trying to embody that um, uh, and over years becoming wise uh, to these things but um, and just for me being around uh, environments in which you can't be on, you know, the way you were before. You gotta, you gotta adapt because simply your, your message, you 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 will become irrelevant. Uh, my fear is that a lot of people from the traditional crowd are being uh are being marginalised and become irrelevant. And some of them are not really bothered about that. Perhaps, perhaps they just, you know, and part of it's part of their way um, to remain or to be seen to be. Uh, looked at as being irrelevant in this world of, you know, uh, everything Islam began as something strange. So therefore, you know, part, you know, um, you know, um, you know uh, let the, those who would let the strangers be blessed or blessed are the strangers type of thing. So, but that's not the way of the teachers. Our teachers are not like that. Our teachers are, you know, anybody willing to listen, we're going to go. Even, even, even if you're not willing to listen, going to go and we're going to go outside of our comfort zones and historically the Habaib historically have done that how was Islam spread to Indonesia Malaysia Singapore uh, Southeast Asia and is spreading you know in other places because they've left their comfort zones and they've gone to places which is challenging which is difficult and but how is da'wah uh, meant to be done if it's not done by you you know taking yourself outside your comfort zones and talking with people who you you perhaps may feel uncomfortable talking with. So, And this is something that um, more the the political activists may have problems with the traditional crowd because the traditional crowd uh, uh, have reservations about dealing with people in power or state authorities. And you kind of seen that where certain figures from mainstream classical Islam have dealt with uh, state powers where there's been a backlash, first and foremost by political activists uh and, and the traditional opponents of some of these scholars but also you have it within the, the traditional crowd themselves who quite who have taken the more purest understanding of we don't talk to the sultan you know that the scholar at the sultan's doors has to you know a, a degree of suspicion has to be cast upon him or her and you know but we kind of have to realize that you know times have changed somewhat and we also have to understand that we come from a tradition in which the spiritual scars of the past had links with the states, and spoke to people of authority to advise them. Did Musa not speak to the Pharaoh? Did Moses not speak to the Pharaoh? And Moses, he was a prophet. And yes, okay, we're not prophets, but the idea isn't that we are like for like. The idea is, that, is the ethos that people in power are human beings and they need nasiha. It's just about being at the appropriate spiritual level to be able to do that without uh, being uh, uh, compromised, I think mean, that's where the problem arises, and uh, we have to have a husn, husn al But the idea that we don't speak to uh, our leaders, we don't have anything to do with with a leader or, or authority, and we don't work with with authorities, um, and there I say with governments to a to to a shared principle or common goal that we all benefit from. I think it's just uh, that's ironic. I, I just uh, I think it's, it's stability if we don't do that shared common goals and principles, if we don't work with people who, you know, that we might find it uncomfortable working with, but if it's a goal that we're all gonna benefit from, we should, and traditionally, Islam historically has always done that. Historically, has always, has always done that with a level of scrupulousness because you don't want to be compromised by the wealth and the prestige and the dunya that some of these people in power, may have and may tempt you with uh, some of the time. So, yeah, there's a lot there we could talk about. But...
0: <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. I think that gives a, a great overview and some great advice. Um, I, I just have one last question, inshallah. You said to remind you to
1: tell a story about Sheikh Hamza and Habib Ali? Ah, yes, yes. Okay, exactly. I thought you forgot about that. So <laughs> uh, this was early 2000s, um, maybe 2003, definitely after September 11th. It was Habib Ali and Sheikh Hamza and a few other scholars happened to be in, in London, and I was fortunate enough to be uh, in a in a gathering afterwards in which there was food, and I remember you know my opportunity to go and you know basically uh, thank Sheikh Hamza uh, for him his contribution and him setting me on this on this path. So I went to him and, and I said to him you know, you know back in the mid '90s you came to mm-hmm. Liverpool. And you did this and you did that and you really made a huge uh, impact on people's lives. And I just wanted to say to you, you know, if I, if I have this opportunity, I want to say thank you. And he and now he's okay, Shahamza's uh ahead of me. Uh I'm, he's talking to me from the side and Habiba'i is to his left. Uh yeah, Habiba'i is to his left, and Shah Hamza now um, just in front of me on, on the table, sitting on the table. And then Shahamza um tells me a story, he goes that uh, at the beginning of his studies, uh, it was, um, he was starting to go towards different, you know, some of these views and these, like, all the groups. And it was one of the Habaib uh, who actually grabbed him and he mentioned that Habib had the Saqaf. He said, Hab- Habib Hadiyah Saqaf, he's passed away now. Uh, he said, he told me, uh, Shahamza said, he grabbed me by my, by my clothes and I said, eh. Why are you going with these groups? Why are you going there? And he kind of shook Shaykh Hamza. And Shaykh Hamza, if, it, if it, you know, he was the one that kind of like snapped him out of the thing, you know, kind of made him like, you know, get back on the right track, so to speak. And, and Shaykh Hamza then began to cry there and then. And and Ali looked. And Ali looked at Hamza crying and he looked at me and he goes, you've stirred something inside his heart, Zain." Hayab Ali saying that. And for me, what I took from that is that, um, that Sheikh Hamza's journey uh, uh, was kind of put on the right track through the Habaib. The mm. Habaib have 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 a direct contribution to his life, and this is this is Hamza told me this. Eh? The Habaib the uh, had a an, uh an impact in his life, and it's, and and the irony is that now. Uh, me, yeah, I've come back to the Habayib. So he's kind of kind of come back full circle. Sheikh Hamza kind of introduced us to traditional Islam. He was kept on his track through the Habayib, and now uh, we're now meeting the Habayib again, or the new generation of the Habayib are coming back in again. So the Habayib have a have a huge contribution towards to traditional Islam in the West, and that moment there kind of like um, highlighted to me the importance of that book of Hamza has uh, been one of the most, if not the greatest, arguably, greatest uh, uh, calls to, to, to traditional Islam and the Habaib uh, have contributed towards uh, his journey uh, in the ways that he kind of, partner, you know, became very emotional. So I just I just kind of, you know, kind of come full circle back to the Habaib. It starts with the Habaib, you could argue, and comes back, has come back to them. And so I think that, you know, that's kind of uh, very unique. It's kind of you know. There's a deep, there's deep lessons in the subhanallah just uh, just how far the reach of the habayib uh, and other mashaikh, uh, you know, have uh, subhanallah khair. That, that I hope that's beneficial.
0: Yes, definitely. Thank you so much. I love I love that full circle feel. And yeah, thank you so much for your time and.
1: oh thank and, you for <laughs> for what you're for what you were doing. I think it's uh, it's unique, and I think I just give you some advice that uh, mm-hmm. uh, if you are still alive inshallah and the teachers you, you've spoken to are still alive it may be worthwhile doing something similar in about 10 years time uh, if you still have the appetite just to see how the changes in people because you will find that uh, some of the things that I've said uh, I, I may change in about 10 years time just, and some of the things that people have said to you already uh, you know they may change their views and just naturally if you look at uh, some of our teachers like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf for example over the past 20 years He's radically different mm-hmm. and he's changed and he, he, he speaks about this himself and i think it's for me uh you know and others listening to that i think it's it's it's, uh, it's it, it comes from a very sincere place but it gives us a kind of a heads up that you know look and you, you know you will inevitably shift uh, your views uh because the world you know is shifting and changing and you kind of you can't keep uh, you know, in one mode, uh, in one gear, you're going to shift gears and change uh, without compromising your core fundamental values and beliefs. But obviously, you know, change did the challenges. And historically, scholars did this. al-Shafi'i did this when he moved and moved to Egypt. He changed his whole school in, in his own lifetime. His, his school radically changed. So he kind of, you know, after moving and going to a different environment, Egypt, uh, and seeing the challenges, there he changed his whole school. So this idea of tajdeed, of renewal is something that is not foreign, uh, but if it's it's just got to be done in the right way, uh, it doesn't compromise our principles, inshallah ta'ala. But I think it it is healthy. And no doubt people who will perhaps listen to this may have the wrong, will inevitably have the wrong wrong understanding and misinterpret some of the things that I've said. You can reach out to me on Facebook to get clarification. Um. uh, or, you know, yeah, definitely have a look at the, the lectures that I've done simplifying the chaos uh, inshallah mm-hmm. uh, which I can uh, give you the details for if you remind me later inshallah but <laughs> 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 you're doing a very uh, interesting job inshallah and I think you'll benefit more than anybody else listening uh, to yeah. this and editing I think there's a, there's, be, there's a lot of gems that are coming out uh, there because you're getting you are through these interviews you are traveling to far off countries you're going back in time uh, and you know, listening to things that people haven't really spoke about for twenty years. So you kind of get—it's very unique. You're going back in time, listening and experiencing, and so it's kind of an interesting journey for yourself. That no doubt, uh, you yourself probably probably be worth interviewing at the end. Uh, your experiences in dealing and in interviewing other people. So perhaps, inshallah, I may I may do that for you. Uh, when you finish, that, I may interview interview you and see uh, <laughs> how it's been and what you've learned. Inshallah. But mm-hmm. let me know when you're ready. <laughs> okay i don't know if i'm worth interviewing but inshallah it'd be useful it'd be useful, it'd be useful inshallah. Inshallah. continue doing this and you know maybe have an archive because what you're doing you, you're recording history mm-hmm. uh, the history yeah. of, of traditional islam in the west and it's a story uh, that is continuing to be developed but i think it's a story that uh, needs to be uh, preserved and needs to be told because in the future, people will look back and try and, you know, connect dots, <coughs> if the dots are already connected. It's good. Yeah. I think academics in the future will probably uh, look back at look back mm-hmm. at this and kind of, you know, use some of your material. And just just for us, just to see the, the hidden hand of God behind all this. Mm-hmm. You know, that you know, opportunities came, doors opened up. You know, the Habayb's uh, link there from behind a lot of this type of stuff. Uh, you know How the Dawah in the West uh, Traditionally Has had Has had Habayb mm-hmm. uh hand Very Very clear now As we're starting to see um, And you know MashaAllah So that, may that continue to grow Inshallah mm-hmm. and, and the other Mashaikh That were kind of uh, Are there as well Inshallah and So all from Allah SubhanAllah All right mm-hmm. Allah bless you You as well <laughs> ورالمنازل يا محمد يا من الخلق من نور ربه يا من سُمِّ